This week on Punch Mountain. How can you expect me to support the police when Will Smith and Martin Lawrence just murdered 147 minutes of my life? Get ready to ride together and die together because we're watching Bad Boys 2. Punch Mountain starts now. Welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies. Not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake, and I'm joined as always by the action Sherpa himself, the find out to my fuck around, Mr. David Hada. David Hada, how the hell are you? The find out to my fuck around, that's really good. That's like wedding vow good. <laughs> Man, you should sell that. I'm doing all right now. That's like a tonic. Thank you so much, Mac. How are you? I'm doing good. Now we got to go beat up some dudes. Yeah, because we're a couple of bad boys. I feel like a, I would use uh, some sort of a genie's lamp. You know, not on purpose, but like in some like, oh, no, I accidentally made a wish. And you and I would get sucked into the video game Bad Dudes. And we would have to, or like a, a double dragon or a final fight. The kind where you're like beating up uh dudes and then you like punch up a trash can there's like a roast turkey dinner you know what i mean oh absolutely i think that is the game that most fits what we would do with the exception like burger time but that's not a two-player co-op i need to find something for you to do actually you know what let's go ahead and write that script uh a couple of losers hey it's out of stretch we get uh, stuck (laughs) to do a video game we got to beat some bosses and do some sick kicks. I thought you were going to say, let's get sucked into burger time. And I was, I saw no problem with that script. Let's do that. Let's go suck down a couple of burgers, David. <laughs> suck it on chili dogs, Mac. And we're also talking about Bad Boys 2 tonight. Are you excited to talk about Bad Boys 2 tonight? I was excited to watch Bad Boys 2. And the answer to your question, though, that's a mystery I will reveal here as we go along. But David, this was your suggestion for The Mountain. Bad Boys 2, directed by Michael Bay, starring Will Smith, Martin Lawrence. What made you suggest this one for The Mountain? I feel like it was inevitable, but what brought it out to top of mind? Oh, sure. Uh, A couple reasons. One, since we are coming up on essentially a year of Punch Mountain episodes. Like if you wanted to listen to an episode every week, now you can or we're getting there. But since our first episode was Michael Bay's The Rock, I decided, well, let's commemorate a year of Punch Mountain with another Michael Bay movie. And I also wanted to do this one because I thought I was ready for it because I had actually never seen this movie. Uh, I had no interest in Bad Boys 2. I had no interest in Bad Boys 1. I still have yet to see that one. But I thought since I've been spending the past year watching action movies and developing a newer appreciation for action movies, I thought, why not? Let's go ahead and test my abilities by watching Bad Boys 2. And Mac, I have made a huge mistake. I should have vetted this movie maybe (laughs) a little bit, maybe given some thought to it, but uh, this did not go the way I wanted it to. Mac, have you seen this movie before? Is this your first time watching Bad Boys 2? I have seen it once before whenever it was out on uh, home video. The main thing I remember about it was just how like scaled up it was. Like, oh, they're cops in a case. And at the end, they're like invading Cuba. And I was like, whoa. And so in, in my memory... In terms of the Michael Bay catalog, like this is one of his best, right? Because this is like nuts, it's pure Bayham. And and watching it, it's definitely a lot more of a mess than I remember it being. And I do definitely have some problems with it. I think I'm gonna have fun talking about it though. But David, it does surprise me that you've never seen Bad Boys or Bad Boys 2. Especially Bad Boys 2. And, and I'll be honest with you, part of the blame is in the movie Hot Fuzz, uh, Nick Frost's character is like, I got point breaking Bad Boys 2. Like in my mind, I was like, oh, these are these are legendary action movies in a way. But but yes, David, what what has kept you from seeing it so far? That's an awesome question. I Because 
you know, this came out in 2003. This was at a time when I was watching pretty much anything that came out. So I was a little surprised that I hadn't gotten around to this one either, especially with its presence on TNT or USA or anything like that. But in doing research for this episode, I pulled up or I saw some critical feedback about this movie from Roger Ebert and Richard Roper. And this was back when Roger Ebert was still alive, Zod rest his soul. And I was still reading his articles religiously. I was still reading his reviews every week. And he gave Bad Boys 2 one out of four stars. I imagine that carried a lot of weight with me. And then I also saw that Richard Roper named this his worst movie of 2003. And so I started to feel validated a little bit that, okay, I wasn't just being some snob. I wasn't just being some jerk about movies. Like, I'll go see a movie if it's good. And I just never heard that this was good. It was only until years later that I heard, oh, man, it's crazy. The action's nuts in it. So that's when I started to give it consideration. But no, it makes a lot of sense that I would not have seen this back when it first came out. But undeniably, though, it's Michael Bay and Jerry Bruckheimer in the middle of an incredible run. Yeah, David, that's very true. I I, I was almost going to say it's important to remember. None of this is important. <laughs> but yes, you would do well to remember, action fans, that before the Marvel Universe, you know, where there's all these superheroes all over the place, this was Jerry Bruckheimer's world. Like from 95 to 03, like this dude had a house style. It basically the house style was Tony Scott and he combined with Michael Bay and then some other sort of like, in sports you might call them system players, but his, the directors of these movies, they all kind of, you know, felt the same. So, you know, Bruckheimer and his partner, Don Simpson, who, who died shortly into this run, you know, they produced like Top Gun, Days of Thunder, Beverly Hills Cop. But in 95, Crimson Tide came out. Bad Boys came out. Dangerous Minds came out. And then 96, you got The Rock, 97, Con Air, 98, Armageddon, also 98, Will Smith, Enemy of the State, Gone in 60 Seconds was 2000, I guess 99 was an off year. Also 2000, like Remember the Titans, Coyote Ugly, like, and <laughs> Coyote Ugly and Remember the Titans, not action movies, right? But also in 2001, you had Pearl Harbor, Black Hawk Down, and then he's like running out of like celebrities to like mash into these generic action movies. And so like O2 is Bad Company with Chris Rock and Anthony Hopkins. Oh, and no. then- what happens in 2003, you get Bad Boys 2, but then you also get Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. And I'm not a movie historian, David, but I feel like somewhere around Pirates of the Caribbean, Transformers, and then the uh, the first Iron Man movie, then all of a sudden there's this like shift just to like, we're an IP world, right? Star-driven action movies are kind of a harder sell, whereas if something is based off of like an existing uh, intellectual property of the fan base then that is more likely to get greenlit. Now, National Treasure 1 and 2, uh, also Jerry Brimer Productions, came out after that as well. Just, I know there's some National Treasure fans out there. I just wanted you to be seen. No, it does feel, in a sense, like Jerry Bruckheimer kind of went away after 2003, but that's not true. He, in fact, like you said, he latched on to two of the biggest IPs of his career, the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise and CSI. This is also around the same time that we see him lean into the CSI franchise a lot more. Uh, I don't know how involved he is in it, but I know that certainly pays for a lot of boats and houses. But David, the star of this movie, Will Smith, you know, not the same person as he was in 2003. What'd you think about him in this movie? Oh boy. I'll, I'll say this about everybody in this movie. In fact, I'll say this about the movie in general. I, I'm not going to go easy on this one. I'm going to be pretty upset about uh, Bad Boys 2. And I think it starts with the triumvirate of Will Smith, Martin Lawrence, and Michael Bay. My thesis statement for this movie is that it's a movie made by people who did not want to be there. And you can tell. You can tell that they're just there to collect the paycheck, and I have no problem with that. God bless you. If you if someone's going to pay you to do anything and you want to do it, go do it. 
but this movie has no heart. It has no passion. You ask about Will Smith. I'm not particularly fond of Will Smith in general. I never have been. He's always felt like a phony to me. And that's a weird thing to say of an actor who's just supposed to disappear into roles, but I could never buy him as an engaging presence. So watching him in this movie, I really wanted to, to give Will Smith a fair shake. But man, it doesn't help that he doesn't want to be there. Like, I can't even do an analysis of Will Smith as an actor or as a movie star when it's very clear nobody really wants to do this movie. Yeah, I don't find Will Smith particularly interesting on screen, but he is very likable. And all this movie needs is some likable people to be some bad boys. And I don't know if it did it. David, before we go any further, I think it would help to clear up some common questions. If you search Bad Boys 2 on Google, the results include these frequently asked questions. So let's do some quickly provided answers. David, is Bad Boys 2 on Netflix? It is on Netflix. You have to search for a category called $5 bin. Mac, is Bad Boys 2 better than one? No, David, two bad boys is twice as bad as one. David, was Bad Boys 2 a hit? It certainly feels like someone put a contract out on me. Mac, is Bad Boys 2 on HBO? Actually, David, the complete Bad Boys trilogy is on a new streaming platform, Arby's Plus. Enjoy a delicious roast beef while you eat some content. Watch some content? Something like that. Before we dive into the story of two cops with zero hesitation when it comes to opening fire in populated areas, let's check in with two friends with zero hesitation when it comes to opening store-bought sodas in a movie theater. That's us, David. We're bad boys. It's a friendship check-in. David, Hada, how are you doing for real this time? I'm doing all right, Mac. Do you ever sneak food into a movie theater? I used to, yeah. I definitely, I, there was a Sonic on the way to this one movie theater. And uh, you better believe I was wearing cargo shorts. And so in one pocket, there was definitely a grilled cheese sandwich. I would not sneak sodas in there often. I would sneak an occasional adult beverage into a movie theater. Mm -hmm. I was the same way. I you know, I respect the movie theater's intentions of, of making money by selling concessions. So I usually respect that. But when I moved to San Francisco, the AMC Metreon is connected to a Target. And when you walk into that Target and see that a box of Junior Mints is a dollar, you can't help but buy it there at Target and sneak it into the movies. So, hey, that's on you, AMC. Don't partner with Target next time. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah. But, Mac, I'm doing all right. In fact, if I can pull back the curtain a little bit, I want to talk about why we're actually doing Bad Boys 2 for episode 51 instead of 52. Uh, because I know some sticklers for numbers are probably going to be bothered by that. Because we had planned another movie for episode 51, and that was Fist of the North Star. Mac, do you want to talk about Fist of the North Star for a few minutes? <laughs> sure. So we were excited to do an anime as an action movie, and we got a couple recommendations. And for some reason, uh, you know, you're like, which one of these do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know, Fist of the North Star. And I started watching it, and I got about 30 minutes into it, and I texted you, David, and I said, David, this movie is bad. <laughs> I'm 30 minutes in. Does it get better? Because you had, did you finish it? Oh, Mac, by the time you had texted me, I had seen it twice. I had already done my notes on it. Oh, my goodness. So uh, my, my answer was a vehement no. I said, it's not going to get better. And we just decided to scrap the episode. And the only reason I really bring it up is to kind of provide a, an epitaph to this. Because I don't know if I've told mm -hmm. the story on this show before. But I did have a friend of mine in high school, Ryan something, Frank something, I don't remember. But we were, uh, we were buddies in art class in a couple of years of high school. And we would share the same enthusiasm for the same movies. We both loved Brain Candy and Mallrats and Kentucky Fried Movie and Desperado. And we talked about those in a loop. And he kept recommending Fist of the North Star. He says, you got to watch Fist of the North Star. And so watching it now, I realize that is a memory and that is a recommendation that belongs in high school. 
much in the same way that my love of Clerks did back when I was 14 and 15. It's just not something that you could take with you to middle age, and it's not something that it, that ends up being timeless. So I did just want to acknowledge, hey, Ryan Frank, I don't remember your name. I I did finally watch it, and uh, let's never be friends again. I'm sure in middle school it must have been pretty awesome to see uh, a cartoon where a dude punches some other dude's heads, and then those heads explode like again and again and again. But yeah, I, uh, I need a little bit more here in, in the year of our, uh, our Zod 2024. <laughs> you did say Zod earlier, didn't you? I did. Yes. I, sorry. <laughs> I do like it. I like it. I don't, I don't yeah. dislike it. So yeah, we were like, look, if you like Fist and North Star, great. We did not particularly vibe with it. And so we don't want to spend two hours talking about something we did not enjoy. And yet here we are at Bad Boys 2, which, <laughs> spoiler alert, I don't think is going to end up on top of the mountain. But Mac, how are you? Let's check in on you, my friend. I'm good, David. I'm a fun dad, right? I'm a super fun dad. And so if there's something going around uh, for kids in Austin where I live, I'm taking my four-year-old kid. And so I received a targeted ad for Hot Wheels Glow Party Monster Truck Show. And I'm like, yeah, fuck it, we're going. And so I went to this monster truck show. It's my first monster truck show. David, you ever been to anything like this? I have not. Yeah, it was fun, for sure. A couple of surprises. One, this should not have been a surprise. I did not expect that many kids with mullets. Like, even from parents that you would not think, uh, like, yoga-looking parents. You know what I mean? Hmm. Okay. She does yoga. He does Peloton. Their kid's got a mullet. Something doesn't add up. Is that the sequel to Skater Boy? I guess. I don't, I'm not good at singing. <laughs> and the other thing that surprised me, David, was the motocross stuff. At some point, they're giving the monster trucks a breather or something, you know, feeding them whatever monster trucks eat goats. So they, they brought out the the boys on the dirt bikes, and they were doing, you know, some sick-ass jumps. But David, these jumps, what they would do in the air, you know, because you jump up, and then you kind of, like, get off your seat, right? Maybe do Superman, where you hold onto the handlebars, and you extend your legs. looks like you're flying. The Superman was, like, the least dramatic of all the poses. What surprised me is that these motocross dudes were serving it. You know what I mean? Oh, interesting. Like these okay. poses were like a little bit more ballroom than I expected. I was kind of like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. I just, I think somebody at that monster truck show maybe had their bisexual awakening there. And I just think that's oh beautiful. My. And I think he's motocross <laughs> boys or mother cross boys or whatever. I think they opened up some eyes, you know, and maybe some hearts that show. It sure sounds like it, Mac. Look, I'm a sophisticated man, right? I like uh, high class art, like sudden death, the movie. <laughs> But when a monster truck crushes a, a car or when a truckosaurus eats a car in half or when a motorcycle goes really high, yeah, you best believe I go, oh, I just cannot help it. It's uh, it's my natural instinct. We were never supposed to see a car get crunched. So to see it out in the wild, oh my God, what an experience. Yep. Speaking of the wild, David, I was doing some master pancake shows. I was approached by Chris and Judy, some fans of this podcast, and two shocking things happened from judy oh my number one judy gave me a present it was a knit hat black with the spurs fiesta colors and she made it wow that's amazing and gave it to me to wear and it fits my giant head oh jeepers that's great now some of you might assume that just because she gave me a present all of a sudden like she's my favorite punch mountain fan and if she suggests a movie we'll definitely do it from now and you'd be absolutely correct uh, the rest of you need to step up and make me things. No, uh, but yes, I really super appreciated it. It kind of blew my mind a little bit. And she did suggest the movie Beekeeper, which now, you know, I kind of want to do it. That's not the first recommendation I've heard of that. Yeah. And how she recommended it was she's like, it's not great, but it is fun. And 
somebody else recently suggested the movie Plane, starring uh, Gerard Butler and uh, Mike Coulter, using the same you know justification, like, it's not great, but it was fun and I was engaged the whole time. And folks, if you feel that way about a movie, it is a perfect recommendation for us. Because what we're doing with these rankings, we're not out to determine what is the best action movie of all time. We're ranking every action movie, and uh, only really the fun ones. So where Plane falls on Punch Mountain is just as important as where Die Hard falls on Punch Mountain. So unless a movie is like bad and not worth our time, if it's fun, if you know, please recommend it. Don't don't let that stop you from uh, shouting things out to the mountain. Now, David, mm-hmm. the second bombshell that Judy dropped was she said something I did not expect anyone to ever say to me. She goes, what do you guys have against Chappie? Oh, no, no, you misunderstand. Please go ahead, Mac, answer first. She's a Chappie defender. She enjoyed the movie Chappie, which is currently the bottom <laughs> of the uh, the current Punch Mountain rankings. No, 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 no. The fact that it's on the mountain, again, we've said this over and over again, like it just happens to be the least action a movie that we have seen that qualifies for Punch Mountain. There, there's no knock on it. I was thinking about it today in relation to Bad Boys 2, if you can guess where I'm headed with this movie. But at least Chappie was interesting in a way. At least Chappie had some effort behind it. At least, you know, Neil Blomkamp wanted to tell a story. He might have sabotaged himself in the construction of the story. But there's a lot to like about Chappie. No, 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 you misunderstand. I don't think she misunderstands because I think Chappie sucks. <laughs> and- I was like, oh, what we didn't what didn't we like about Chappie? Why don't you listen to the and I was like, oh right. That was one of our test episodes. That was That's, one of two episodes we did when we were trying to like, you know, figure out the show. And those episodes were the Matrix and Chappie. And so yeah, I know people have been clamoring, clamoring for us <laughs> to release the Chappie cut, uh, the Chappie edit. And the fact that someone is interested in Chappie, I don't know, maybe that'll be uh, a Patreon reward. <laughs> and please, please believe uh reward was in quotes. If we ever do a Patreon, which we might. You rolled your own eyes at that. They fell out of my head. (laughs) David, I certainly don't want to die together, but I'm okay riding together. Is is it time we do this thing? Mac, hop in my Ferrari on a cop's salary. We're going in. Okay, David, in case someone has never seen Bad Boys 2 or it has been a minute, just a level set. Could you give the back of the box description, por favor? Oh, I can't wait. Hang on for maximum mayhem, full-on fun, and the wildest chase scenes ever put on film. All right, right away, I gotta go bullshit on this. Full-on fun. What's up now? (laughs) All right, sorry. Please, I'll I'll shut up. No, no, please interrupt away. It's going to... This is going to take us a while. The action and comedy never stop when superstars Martin Lawrence and Will Smith reunite as out-of-control, trash-talking buddy cops. Bullets fly. Cars crash and laughs explode as they pursue a whacked-out drug lord from the streets of Miami to the barrios of Cuba. Ouch. (laughs) But the real fireworks result when Lawrence discovers that Playboy Smith is secretly romancing his sexy sister, Gabrielle Union, bring it on. Director Michael Bay, Pearl Harbor Armageddon, and producer Jerry Bruckheimer, Pirates of the Caribbean, Black Hawk Down, deliver a high-speed, high-octane blockbuster that will blow you away. Year's most action-packed and high-flying flick, Sean Edwards, Fox TV. 2003, 147 minutes, directed by Michael Bay, rated R for strong violence and action, pervasive language, sexuality, and drug content. Sean Edwards, Fox TV, you've received a lifetime ban from Punch Mountain. If you're hearing this podcast, you do not, it's not for you anymore. Turn it, turn it off. Mac, I think this highlights the importance of the back of the box. This is why the back of the box was so vital back in the days of home video, because you could look at this and say, oh, wow. 
the best pull quote they got for this movie in a positive way is from Sean Edwards of Fox TV, and they had to splice it out of whatever he was saying. Because it's not this year's most action-packed high-flying flick. It's not a full sentence, I guess is what I'm saying. It is just dot, 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 year's most action-packed and high-flying flick. That's the best they could get for this movie. Yeah, I mean, whoever wrote this, though, they certainly sold the fuck out of it, right? They were like, in a perfect world, what is this movie? And they wrote it, even though it's also kind of terrible. Uh, whacked out drug lord. <laughs> this feels legally binding. This feels like, okay, you can't say we didn't offer you these things. You just didn't enjoy the things we offered. This almost reads like this person's suicide note. You know what I mean? Like, I see them typing like, bullets fly, cars crash, and laughs explode. Ugh. And then next thing you know, <laughs> they put rocks in their pockets and walk out in the ocean. Oof. Okay, David, how does this movie start? Mac, this movie starts with pallets of ecstasy pills being loaded into caskets. Okay. While Hector Juan Carlos Gianni Tapia, played by Jordi Moya, waits for his drug shipment to be successfully delivered, Miami PD's TNT is getting ready to bust the score. TNT, does that stand for Turner Network Television or Unmutated Teenage Ninja Turtles? Tactical Narcotics Team. And all that team needs is the go-ahead from their undercover agents Mike Lowry and Marcus Burnett, played by Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, respectively. But their comms are broken, and they can't give the signal. Looks like it's going to be a shootout at the clan meeting. When only a single bag of pills is found, the bust turns out to be a bust. Plus, Mike shoots Marcus in the butt. So this movie starts with this fucking Rube Goldberg plan that the drug smugglers have to get ecstasy into Miami. And I'm sitting there like watching the caskets go in the water. Because they load the caskets into the water, but then the caskets have like balloons tied to them. And then mm -hmm. they activate the balloons and the caskets float up at just the right time. And there's like go fast boats. I don't know. It just seems like a lot of fucking steps, David. It seems like they had it at step two and then said, let's add seven more steps because I'm watching this movie. I'm thinking, oh, that's pretty brilliant. That's a good way to get past customs. You load these coffins onto a cargo ship and that gets across the border. And then when customs agents check, it's just caskets. But no, they get on some boat. And then halfway through their boat ride, they decide to dump cargo. They decide to dump the caskets into the ocean. So now you've got a bunch of waterlogged caskets. Why even bother putting them in those in the first place? Like this already, we're really close to a what's the plan here. But I'm not going to pull the trigger on that just yet. And the reason why there's caskets is because the drugs will eventually be hidden in a mortuary. where you find out, out that later. But yes, uh, why wet caskets? You know what I mean? <laughs> There's nothing suspicious about these soaking wet caskets. I guess uh, uh, Namor was buried in one, the Submariner. But we see these drugs go through their drug ecosystem, right? And now it's time to check in with the police. And right before we visit with the TNT tactical uh, nerd team, whatever it is, narco tactical narcotics. <laughs> nerd team. <laughs> the opening shot is a helicopter, a police helicopter, like flying over something. And it, you have like a like deep bass. And just that one quick shot, it was like, here come the bad boys. And I'll admit, David, I got excited right then. And I marked out. I, was, I got goosebumps. I was like, yes, here we go. Let's get some bad boys going. And then we cut to the briefing room of the technical narcotics team. And who's doing the briefing, David? It's Henry Rollins himself. He, he's, uh, he's leading the TNT squad. He's wearing a T-shirt. So you get to see all of his arm tattoos. And they all look fake. No, those are his. This is not some production design choice where they're like, oh, let's give him some of the worst tattoos imaginable. No, that's all Hank Rollins making those picks. Just know, folks, that any subculture right now that seems dangerous or edgy will eventually be ground into the mainstream. The fact that Henry Rollins, uh, frontman for Black Flag, 
you know, when that group was going, if you're like, oh, this guy someday will play a cop in this fucking factory product action movie, you know, you'd think you're crazy, but no, man, that's our world. Okay. So just know that if you like something and it seems out there, it's going to be mainstream in about 20 years. Yeah. I was right there with you. I didn't quite mark out. I came to this movie in good faith. And I, and I think I held on to that for the first half hour of this movie. But like you said, you know, the helicopter comes over, I guess Miami's equivalent of the Hollywood sign, whatever that is. And you also hear that deep bassy score. It reminded me a lot of the beginning of The Rock. And I almost got that feeling of, oh, hell yeah, the boys are back in town. You know, this is going to be a Michael Bay experience. But then I remembered, oh, wait, I hate Michael Bay experiences. So I didn't quite mark out then. One more note about Henry Rollins, though. I love Henry Rollins, and I'm always excited to see him in a movie. So the fact that he was in this, I wasn't like, boo, sell out. I was like, oh, yeah, cool, Henry Rollins. No, I'm glad this movie got Henry Rollins. That was a really great place to put Henry Rollins. But, Mac, I want to play some audio, if I may. This is going to be our villain. This is going to be Johnny Tapia, played by Jordi Moya. And this is going to be his first line of dialogue in the movie. I believe the first lines of dialogue in the movie, period. $150 million on my dope is on the way. Today's going to be a good day. So this movie's uh, 147 minutes. It's almost two and a half hours long. And your first line of dialogue is exposition. Like, we don't need to get there that quickly. We could just let the movie tell the story. But the fact that this movie feels compelled to hit you over the head, it's not a good sign for this script. And I'll say this from the onset. This is a really bad script. In fact, I was taking a look at Wikipedia before we did this episode, and this script went through a lot of hands. In the years between 1998 and 2002, like, some of the names attached to it, even though Ron Shelton and a couple others get credit for the script itself, but John Lee Hancock, Judd Apatow, Seth Rogen, and Evan Goldberg took a pass at it. Brian Helgeland took a pass at it. There's so many names. Tony Gilroy. So many names got a hold of this script, and the final result is this movie Someone needs to check the books on this movie financially. Yeah, screenplay uh, credit, of course, a co-credit to Jerry Stahl, Permanent Midnight himself. Yeah, David, I also looked at that Wikipedia thing and saw how many people touch the script, and it, it blew me away because the script is not great. And then also, aren't Will Smith and Martin Lawrence supposed to be funny? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Do you really need to write that tight of a script? Just let these dudes go, right? Unless they're not the talents they uh, sell themselves as being. And I was sort of hoping that that's what had happened, where the script passed through so many hands and they just realized we've got a dud. Let's go ahead and let them improvise because there's a lot of this movie that is just empty space. It's just padding. It's Will Smith and Martin Lawrence jawing at each other for not the benefit of the plot, for not the advancement of the story that's going on right now. It's really just to pad the runtime so that you can get your audience's money's worth. So where is the final destination for at least some of this dope? It is at a Klan rally. And how do we know it's a Klan rally? Because as soon as they get the drugs, they light a cross on fire. They're not doing anything with this cross, Dave. They're not putting it in someone's yard. I mean, I, I thought that's why they lit a cross on fire was to uh, scare people because they're shitty idiots. But I guess they just use it as like a party decoration. Look, I don't pretend to understand the Klan, but we do see the TNT team, which is redundant because it's technical narcotics team team. We see them approaching and we get a classic Michael Bay shot here, right? Coming out of the water, night goggles on. Hell yeah, except this is a police force. If you like militarized police forces, this is the movie for you. It is a cool shot and it did almost make me wonder if the US military paid for this movie. It is definitely helpful to remember that this movie came out in 2003. We are less than two years from 9-11. So a lot of this movie that feels like it might not hit in 2024 
I know that it hit in 2003, and I'm willing to to give it a pass for that. Like, it was made for the audience that came to see it. But, uh, oh boy, this is a, a police department with a budget. But meanwhile, you've got Johnny Tapia at his home being sent updates on his coffins of drugs. And in the background, he's with two ladies, and they're in, in his bed. They're waiting for him to come back to bed, Johnny. And while they're waiting for him to come back to bed, one of them says, hey, do you want to see Johnny's gun? And they go to get Johnny's gun. And they're play shooting, literally going bang, bang, bang until one of them pulls the trigger. And Johnny's on the phone and he's, he's interrupted by this bang behind him. And he mutters under his breath, fucking bitches. And already, I don't know much about you, Johnny Tapia, but you're signing your permission slip because, hey, man, that's your loaded gun. That's your fault, okay, that they interrupted your phone call. And also, why don't you just give him a snack or something? Give him something to do while you're on the phone. Yeah, and I, I honestly cannot tell you the point of that little scene other than the fact that I guess maybe Johnny is careless, you know, which I mean, if that's true, they kind of, you know, beat it into us throughout the entire movie. But then back at the clan rally, they're doing a clan check, but suddenly two clan members throw off their robes. Oh no, it ain't a bunch of dumb racists. It's Marcus and Mike, Martin Lawrence and Will Smith. And uh, Martin Lawrence says something funny and it's uh, almost like a hot start. I'm into it. There's also a shot at some point of Will Smith, arms spread, one to either side, holding his guns. In the background, his like body position is matched with the cross. Very clearly doing sort of like a Jesus pose in front of this cross. I cannot tell you any reason for that shot. Like, he's definitely not dying for our sins. Uh, I guess whoever was filming it was like, well, this is cool for some reason, but I, I mean, maybe it was. It was very cool. This is going to be my first mark out moment. Again, I was approaching this movie in good faith, and this was a shot that I bet people lost their mind at in the theater. It's Will Smith in the foreground, a cross in the background. He says maybe a regrettable retort because the, the crowd's chanting white power, white power, and he throws off his robe, and he says blue power, motherfucker, which is a little embarrassing in this day yeah. and age. But again, 2003, Bad Boys 2, I'm excited about this, and this is going to be my first markout moment. Yeah, I mean, as long as the script wasn't written by primarily white people, oh, no, it was. <laughs> uh, I didn't mark out there, but I was uh, into it. Now, having the KKK as bad guys is good because the Klan are very killable, right? With these white hoods, there's no gray area. Fuck them, kill them all, right? The Klan are very killable as bad guys, but you all, that also means you're going to hear the N-word a lot. It doesn't mean you have to, but of course this movie definitely is going to go for it. So I'm already like, hey boy. Yeah, this movie is spending its markout moment goodwill very, very quickly. I'm getting depleted as quickly as I was, I was, I was up just a few moments ago. But I want to do a quick punch up here. Like I, again, approaching this movie in good faith, I don't have a problem. If you want to be the kind of movie that uses the N-word or uses racial humor, okay, just write a good racist joke. So I'm going to do a quick punch up real quick because there's a moment where Martin Lawrence is being held hostage by a clan member and the clan member's got a gun to Marcus's head and he says something to the effect of this cop's going to be a dead N. And Marcus's retort is, hey, you know, why can't he just be a cop? Why does he have to be an N? But for Marcus to object at this point after we've heard the N word for quite a few minutes already, my punch up is... Take those moments leading up to that moment with Marcus being held hostage to use other softer slur words. I'm, I'm sure the writers know plenty. And so that way, when you do get to the N-word, you can kind of have that record scratch moment. In fact, I'm surprised Michael Bay didn't literally put a record scratch moment in there. But at least then, the payoff of Martin Lawrence objecting to it makes more sense. I'm sorry I'm spending this much time 
on a disposable joke, but I, I'm trying to tell you there is a better way to do this very lazy movie. I kind of hear what you're saying. I think this movie's a little too casual about using the N-word. And I'm not saying like, well, they're clan members, Mac. Like, of course, they're going to fucking say this word. It's like, yeah, but you want to have some weight behind it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Even coming out of the mouth of an obvious racist person, you know, that word's going to hit and the movie sort of did not even really think about that. But as there's sort of chaos going down on this pier, this dock, we cut to the technical narcotics team and their comms aren't working. So they're like, they cannot tell whether or not they need to move in. And Rollins is like, don't move yet. Man, I feel like the military or technical advisor in this movie like died or something like that, like halfway through. And they only got notes on like half of the movie because there's parts of it that feel like very much like, oh, I bet this is actually how these teams work. I bet these are their processes when it comes to these kind of operations. And then there's just like, Dumb stuff like, even though we have nothing to lose by moving in, let's not, just in case, for some, I don't know. So it looks like the bad boys are going to be in a shootout with these clan members. David is our first action set piece. I'm going to call it Bad Boys Are Back. This is an okay shootout. It's loud, it's bloody, but I don't know what's going on. I never do in a Michael Bay shootout, and I don't want to knock the movie just yet for it, but I'm already starting to feel like, uh uh-oh. We're headed for a Michael Bay movie. Yeah, I thought the shootout was fun, right? There's some fun, like, John Woo-style stuff. There's a cool, like, super slow-mo bullet shot that I enjoyed. But you're right, David. One of Michael Bay's weaknesses is that his action scenes often lack a sense of space. They don't do a good job of creating spatial awareness of the environment. What I mean by this is, okay, we have our heroes here, and then our bad guys are surrounding them. And so when the shooting starts, like... Do the bad guys go one way? Do the good guys hide over here? In the background, you see the bad guys just running in circles. It's almost like an RRR when we pointed out that like some people fleeing the animals were fleeing every direction everywhere, which is, I don't, (laughs) you guys got to pick a direction. Like if these bad guys are running away, run away from the water. You know what I mean? Unless you grew fins, you need to go run, hide in the swamp or trees or whatever's over there. But they're just like running in circles. And so the fact that like bullets are coming from everywhere, you're like, I cannot tell where anybody's supposed to be. You know, it's Mm. funny. I stumbled across a video of uh, Shia LaBeouf on Instagram talking about Transformers 3, which I don't know why. No offense. I'm not (laughs) searching for Transformers Shia LaBeouf content on Instagram. But he was saying that Transformers 2 is bad and the Transformers 3 was going to be good. And one of the reasons why Transformers 2 is bad is because you, for this very reason, like it was confusing and you couldn't tell what was going on. Kudos to, I guess, Michael Bay for figuring that out and trying to do better in Transformers 3. But why did it take him, I don't know, six fucking movies to be like, oh, the audience kind of needs to know, uh, I don't know, where characters are in relation to each other. I like that Shia LaBeouf came out and said that about Transformers 2. Does he not realize he made Transformers 1? That had the same problem. Like, just tell us that you made Transformers 2 for a boatload of money. And now you're going to make another boatload of money with Transformers 3. But you're right, Mag. It's funny you mentioned the people just running around. It's almost like they're Space Invaders enemies. And their only purpose is to avoid getting shot until they get shot. They're not running for cover. They're not looking for a place to shoot back. They're just staying alive as long as they can until their inevitable death. Yeah, for sure. And also, I don't know, maybe Shia LaBeouf did say that about Transformers 1. I'm not watching that full interview. That dude is sketchy, right? Doesn't he have crimes (laughs) against him? Oh, Shia LaBeouf. He's a pastor now, so everything's A-OK. But at the end of this action scene, Mike shoots Marcus in the butt accidentally. So while Marcus is like, well, we got to probably go to a hospital, Henry Rollins is like, look, man, all we found is one fucking bag of pills. 
I don't know where you got your information, but it fucking sucks. But Mac, Mike, and Marcus vow to find the informant who gave them bad information, and they also briefly discuss family. The next day, Marcus's sexy sister, Sid, arrives, played by Gabrielle Union. In addition to being sexy, she also works for the DEA, and she's also been seeing Mike for months without telling Marcus. But Marcus has a secret of his own. He's put in his transfer papers to another division. Gasp, he's splitting up the bad boys. Anyway, Sid's gotta run. She's undercover as a money launderer, and she has a meeting with Russian gangster Alexei, played by all-purpose European Peter Stormare. What a coincidence, because Mike and Marcus are in pursuit of a Haitian gang who's getting ready to rip off Alexei. This leads to a shootout and a high-speed chase on the freeways of Miami. Things seem to get out of hand real quick when you're a bad boy. Before we go any farther, let's talk about the basic plot of this movie. It's not something we haven't seen before, right? You have a kingpin or a wannabe kingpin uh, rising to the top. You know, people have been unsuccessful tracking him down, and it's up to some police or some sort of law enforcement to do that. But my problem is, David, is like, they haven't given us any other reason to care. You know, I mean, as far as I know, this is just ecstasy, right? Like, this is just a, a party drug. Like, we see some kid like OD, it's like, okay, I mean, uh, maybe he took something else, I don't know. Like, we so far, we don't really know anything else, else about this ecstasy, other than it, to me, seems like not, a, not that big of a deal. And we know nothing about this drug operation in order to, like, fear them or give them any sort of personality, other than the fact that uh, the main guy, Johnny Tapia, does seem, I'll give the back-of-the-box copywriter credit for this, he does seem a little whacked out. Oh, he's downright certifiable. But there is something about this movie overall that feels a little insulting because it really just feels like it's a highlight reel of a much better movie where, okay, here's an explosion, here's a car chase, here's some stunt work, but then also here's some lighter moments. But like, none of it feels like anybody wanted to do it. Like nobody wrote this script because they had something to say or nobody wrote this script because they wanted to explore the further adventures of Mike and Marcus. That's the thing about sequels that we've seen so far on the mountain is that either someone's doing a second movie because they want to go bananas with it. They know that the first one was a hit. They know that the second one's getting a smaller budget and they just want to go nuts with it. Or uh, they have something else to say. They have, a you know, like a John Wick 2. They want to build the universe out. This one's not doing anything like that. It's really just the further adventures of, but it's not even letting you in on the adventure. It's not giving you a reason to root against Johnny Tapia. Well, I mean, just from looking at him and listening to him because he's a low-grade villain. I'm going off on a tangent because I'm complaining about this movie, so I will stop now. But compare this to another Miami-based buddy cop movie, Miami Vice, directed by Michael Mann. At the beginning of that movie, it's a similar kind of thing. They're like, hey, uh, Miami PD, we need you to get on this drug case. But the DA comes and they're like, hey, man, these guys are bad. They got mold. We don't know like where the leads are coming from. We can't trust it. We need some fresh faces. It's up to you. It's like already there's like big stakes. Like this crew is like legit. The DEA is like, you know, struggling. They need some outside help. But we don't know anything about this operation other than they like caskets right now. But back in the movie, we see Marcus being wheeled into the hospital. And he and Mike are having some really just, I don't know, not entertaining banter. And they're talking about therapy. And Marcus, this is kind of his, I don't know, character arc throughout the movie, is he's trying to be less angry, less violent. Because, you know, he went to therapy. And first of all, David, I fucking hate this movie's, like, idea of therapy. Because mm-hmm. Marcus, for him, therapy is, he's got to say, like, woosah, woosah, every time he gets angry. Kind of like Kramer saying Serenity Now. And you see him mm-hmm. in, like, a group setting, and they're, like, you know, moving their arms and, like, chanting. It just is like, man, therapy seems like some sort of experimental kumbaya thing instead of just trying to, you know, talk about how you're feeling in that moment. Okay, movie. And then how did Mike 
Will Smith's therapy go? We see him getting a blowjob from his therapist, which I'm surprised this movie did not result in a class action lawsuit from therapists. Hey, guess what? Uh, now a bunch of our clients think we're going to blow them, which is never going to fucking happen. So uh, fuck you, bad boys too. Yeah, thanks for telling everybody that therapy is essentially a cult. Now they're never going to listen to us again, and now we're going to have the trajectory over the next 21 years. But the thing I didn't like about this therapy discussion is the delivery of it, because it essentially boils down to what amounts to family guy cutaways, where Marcus and Mike are talking and they're like, well, you remember the time you went to therapy and they smash cut to Marcus and therapy. Smash cut back to them on the way to the hospital. Oh, but Mike, let's not forget your problems with therapy. Smash cut back to therapy. It's like so much of this movie doesn't need to be in this movie. It's just a bunch of blocks that they fit together anywhere. You don't need this conversation. You could have, I guess at the heart of it, it's supposed to be Marcus saying, I'm on my way out. I'm done with bad boys. But there's any number of ways to say that. I just, this movie feels like a waste. Yeah, and look, I think therapy is a perfectly okay thing to make fun of. You know what I mean? Like, go ahead, like, write some good jokes. But in this movie, the punchline is just therapy. Like, uh, get in mm-hmm. therapy. <laughs> That's not something dudes do. I don't know what that was. <laughs> but yeah, David, I don't give a shit about any of their conversations in this movie. So you know what? I'm going to try not to harp on them as we go through. <laughs> just know that their interactions in the movie, uh, I feel like, rarely are interesting. Sorry, movie. I'll say this. Michael Bay is probably making fun of us. If he ever hears that we did an episode, I think he can't believe that someone is spending this much time breaking this movie down. I don't think this movie was meant to be broken down. This is just fast food. God bless it. But at the same time, I don't want it to give me food poisoning. Then we cut to a dumb club scene run. And this club is run by Alexei, played by uh, Peter Stormare, playing again, a Russian character. And we see uh, a guy ODs and they just dump him outside. We don't know why he ODs really. And David, we're getting strobe lights. We're getting uh, crazy camera moves. The film is super saturated. Everything is blue. I mean, this to me, David, is just a huge eyesore. But but honestly, at some point, was this cool? Did this ever look cool? That's a really good question. And I think the answer lies somewhere in Michael Bay's career as a vi- as a music video director. I think this type of imagery was very evocative in a video for a three-minute song or a four-minute song where you're just trying to titillate. You know, you're trying to add a visual element to a to an audio medium. But for a movie, like we don't need this. In, in fact, there's a moment where you're going through the club and it's just an upskirt cam. It's a it's a camera positioned on the ground, looking up as it follows some babe through the club and it's just like this movie is for teens and degenerates this does not need to be a general audience type movie like this is a movie for a special kind of sleaze you're not wrong david Uh, i also want to give a shout out for sky vodka which you can see in the background of this club the drink of choice of in mob run clubs i don't know why sky vodka was like yes let's put some branding in this scene this is this is on brand for us Uh, but as mike and marcus talk to each other marcus mentions mike's trust fund And we see later when Mike comes to visit Marcus, you know, Marcus is now back at home. He's chilling in his pool. Mike rolls up in a fucking Ferrari. And I wonder, David, is Mike rich? And I asked uh, Google, I typed, is Mike from Bad Boys 2 wealthy? And the internet says, yes, David. There's some like Bad Boys Mm -hmm. Wikipedia, And it says, Mike is a wealthy ladies man. Why are you so rich? Are you still a fucking cop? I guess he's just in it for the thrills, David. Marcus, he also seems pretty well off, right? He does seem well off. He's living on a a shoreline property in Miami that can't be cheap. Like, I don't, that's the other thing. I don't know why he buys an above ground pool when there's water right there. 
But I guess the only reason that above ground pool exists is to make Marcus a punchline because he's so poor. He's so cheap that he won't even buy a wealthy, well-to-do pool. Like, no, he seems like he's doing really well for himself. Yeah, and his bullshit kids start complaining about the pool. I would launch them into the uh, river there or the bay. (laughs) Why didn't you buy the more expensive one? Why do you get a fucking job, kid? But Sid shows up, Marcus's sister, played by Gabrielle Union, and she's like, Mike, when are you going to tell Marcus, my brother, that you and I hooked up in New York and now we've been dating ever since? And Mike's like, oh, just now's not a good time. Cut to inside the kitchen. Marcus is talking to his wife. He's got a secret too. He's like, uh, I put in transfer papers so I could, you know, no longer be in the narcotics division. I'll no longer be Mike's partner because it's, you know, it's uh, dangerous to my health, which he's not wrong at all because they're super fucking dangerous and, and careless. And Marcus's wife is like, when are you going to tell Mike? And Marcus, you know, in kind of a, a mere, mirrored reaction says, oh, now is not the right time. So look at this, David. They both got secrets. One of these secrets is going to explode. This is a powder keg. Okay, so here's something I want to bring up with regard to buddy cop movies in general. Usually the conflict comes from the case itself or their methods of police work. Maybe one's a hothead and one's by the book or something like that. The friction between the buddies and the buddy cop formula should not come from their day-to-day bullshit lives. Like, it should not come from the secrets they're keeping about, you know, behind one another's back. Oh, you're dating my sister? Oh, you're going to transfer out? I don't care. There are drugs being smuggled in that I guess are killing people. Let's get to Peter Stormare. So Mike gets a call and he's like, oh, we got a roll. We, there's a drug shipment coming in. How we know this? Because he just yells at his secret cop plans to everyone at the <laughs> cookout, which uh, I don't know, doesn't seem very cop-like. And so now the bad boys are in action. They got to investigate a crime, which means Marcus has to change from his casual Alonzo morning jersey to a more work-ready Michael Vick jersey. Another thing that aged super well. Yeah. And another thing, Mac, those jerseys are not cheap. You know, for him to have an array of jerseys from basketball to football and beyond, uh, he's got to be pulling in great money to look that sharp. Come on. And what is going down? Well, we cut to the Russian gang's hideout or wherever their bar where Peter Stormare is like, you know, exchanging some money. He's giving some dirty money to this other organization to like launder it, right? And what's this other organization? It's Gabrielle Union. It's Sid. She's undercover as some sort of money moving uh, middleman, right? And then she's going to take the money back to, I guess, Johnny Tapia. Is that what we believe? I think it is. I guess so. I'm not quite sure, but let's say yes. But somehow a a Haitian gang gets wind that this deal's going down. And (laughs) David, I don't know what to make of this. But in order to, before they go into battle, this Haitian gang pulls out some giant ox horn or something and like trumpets. I don't. I don't know what's going on. It doesn't feel right. You know what I mean? Oh, you mean uh, establishing some sort of uh, primitive iconography with this Haitian gang? Yeah, I, I don't know what could be uh, off about that. Yeah, all I'm saying is that better be true. You know what I mean? That better be research. Like, <laughs> oh, no, the Haitian kings or whatever, uh, you know, who operated out of Miami. They definitely blew a battle horn. It's like, because if you fucking made that up, fuck you. Jerry Stahl, Ron <laughs> Shelton, whoever else touched this thing. But what happens? Sid, undercover, tries to leave with the money. But as she's getting in the car, the Haitian gang comes up and they open fire. They're trying to hijack the car. Sid like peels out in her car. She's escaping. Witnessing this is Marcus and Mike. They're in pursuit. Oh, my goodness. It's an action set piece we'll call Haitian Hit Wave. Now, David, all that communication shit earlier with the tactical narcotics team. It seemed like the movie went through great pains to make that feel realistic. But why doesn't any of this realism feel real, right? 
like that horn, the way Mike and Marcus operate, like just, you know, calling like, I need backup on canal. Like what? They're driving on the sidewalk. They don't have a cop light. The fact that Mike is driving a fucking Ferrari, his own Ferrari as a police car. It's like we care a little, but not that much. There's a real clash of styles with this movie. It wants the action to be gritty and real and to be accurate tactically and strategically. But then it also wants lighthearted moments. It wants Martin Lawrence sitting passenger seat in Mike's Ferrari going, wow, did you see that? Whoa. But yeah, like you end up with this mishmash where you can't take it seriously. Like the fact that Peter Stormare is in this movie, his mere existence, and we talked about this a little with John Wick too, where look, I love the existence of Peter Stormare as a human being. I, I do enjoy seeing him in things, but his appearance also lends this sort of cheapness, also lends this sort of low budget kind of quality. So I'm just, I'm really left with a lot of confusion regarding what this movie wants to be. No, I think you're absolutely right. There is that definitely that clash of styles. This movie cannot decide if it wants to be Black Hawk Down or Hard Target. And instead, it's just both, right? It's like, do we want to have like a gritty, realistic, by the book, you know, military kind of or cop movie? Or do we want to have Jean-Claude Van Damme punching out a snake, right? And the answer is, uh, Michael Bay tries to have it all. He's the Bay man, right? <laughs> oh, God. But in the beginning of the scene, one of the hijackers trying to get in Sid's car, uh, he's like hanging onto the door and she's trying to leave the parking garage. And so she turns her car or like, you know, aims the steering wheel to where this hijacker hits a cement beam and he gets crunched. David, I'm on record saying, I love it when dudes get crunched. And I said, hell yeah. And this dude, not only does he get crunched, when he falls off the parking garage, he lands on something else that explodes. Michael Bay, this is what I want from you. You know what I mean? This is what I want. I want a crunch into an explosion. Ah, it's a little taste, but I, I liked it. I liked it too. Here's the, here's the thing though. This is what I want out of Michael Bay, but I think there are dozens of directors who can do it better. I think Michael Bay has gotten so set in his ways that he hasn't evolved beyond this type of thing where part of the appeal is its silliness and its stupidity. That's just the kind of director he is. He revels in or he excels in the more stupid aspects of an action movie. Yeah, no, I look, I love what essentially amounts to a dummy flying in the air because it exploded for some unexplicable reason. But this just in this moment, this is just not doing it for me. And so Sid drives by in her car, and about like a quarter of a mile away are Marcus and Mike. And Marcus is like, it's Sid. Get the fuck out of here. God, it's so lazy. <laughs> you could have just had him say, is that Sid? No, but the fact that he's like, mm -hmm. oh, I definitely know who that is just to tell the audience that we know. Anyway, got to get going. Well, I also don't want to nitpick here, but did he spot Sid behind the wheel of whatever she was driving? Because I have to imagine she's in a rental. It's not like he sees a Corvette driving by and he goes, oh, that's Sid's Corvette. No, he sees a Ford Focus and he's like, hey, Sid's in that car. That is some amazing sibling ESP to know where your sister is in that moment. Yeah, he totally did not expect his sister to be there, look like that or drive that car, but he recognized her instantly from half a mile away. <laughs> yeah, this movie's great. But Mike and Marcus are after the Haitians. The Haitians are after Sid. And that results in Sid like crashing her car. And now the Haitians get out of their car. It's a shootout, David. This is a layered action scene. We're going to go from a car chase to a shootout back to a car chase. So this Haitian hit wave has it all. And by the way, once the cops show up, and they do, the rest of the police force, the Haitians, they're not trying to escape at all. They're not like, oh shit, the cops are here. Let's get out of here. They dig in. They're <laughs> not looking to escape. I mean, that'd be interesting to know that about the Haitians. Have someone be like on the radio, like, oh shit, is this the Port-au-Prince warlords? Oh no, 
these guys don't get arrested. They fight until they die. Like, you know, that, that would be something. But instead, these guys just seem fucking stupid. Yeah, it absolutely would have. I'll tell you what, as it goes into the shootout, I really enjoyed this shootout from a ballistics perspective. You know, for them to be able to hide behind a, a transformer or hide behind the cars and you see the pip, 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 pip of the bullets, that, that works for me. But this is also a moment where you see the Haitian gang dig in and there's a lot of innocent bystanders. There's a lot of people, you know, at the gas station who they're suddenly surrounded by gunfire and they're running for their lives. In 2003, two years after 9-11, this might hit a little harder, maybe, to a sensitive touch. But if you have something like that, where if you establish a sort of cinematic villainy to it, where they're like, oh my God, these are, this gang is bad news. They'll, you know, at least make it entertaining. I don't know. This The shootout is entertaining, but then again, it isn't. It's very hard to make action and danger entertaining in 2003. Yeah, again, I'm torn because I do like this shootout. You know, you don't have a great sense of space, but you don't need it in this kind of shootout because you get the feeling like, oh, cops are on one side, Haitian gangs on the other. But you're right. In 2003, this level of gang violence, even though it is like a local gang, it 100% would have been labeled as domestic terrorism. Mm -hmm. Having this kind of, in a major urban city, having this level of urban warfare would have been on every fucking news channel. It would have been a huge deal. And this movie, even though this is a fun action scene, like later when we get to the police station, kind of treats it like it's nothing. Which, you mm -hmm. know, look, I'm all for crazy Bayham, but shit's got to have some weight to it. It's got to mean something. Like if Will Smith accidentally knocks over the Washington Monument, it can't be like, whoops, drinks of chilies afterward. You know, it's, there's got to be repercussions. Yeah, it's got to mean something or it's got to mean nothing. And in fact, I'm thinking of another Michael Bay movie. I'm thinking of the car chase in the rock through the streets of San Francisco where they're in the yellow Lambo Ferrari. I don't remember. It's a very mm -hmm. fast car. But the only thing we see destroyed are other cars. We see, you know, fruit carts get destroyed and stuff like that. It's a fun time because we're not worried about the news afterwards where we hear about tragedy today as 26 people were run over by a yellow car in San Francisco. No, it establishes itself as a fun chase. It stays a fun chase. Bad Boys 2 does not have that same issue. It has a fun chase and then it tries to pivot and ground it in reality. And then you're stuck in reality, which is not where you want to be when you go see Bad Boys 2. Yeah, you're thinking like, oh man, shit definitely just got real. But then the movie's like, oh no, 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 not yet. Shit's not real yet. And you're like, oh, oh, okay. But anyway, we get back in the cars and now we have a car chase and man, everything has got a camera on it, right? Like every car going anywhere has got a, a camera all of a sudden, like you're getting all these angles and all these car crashes. I can't really tell where things are, but it looks cool. I'm having fun, I guess. And at some point, the bad guys hijack a car carrier and they start letting the cars go. The cars are falling off the car carrier because I guess I'm from Boston. And Mike and Marcus are like dodging the cars as they're falling, which is fucking insane. You know, we're still having fun here. I, I'm, I'm, into, I'm into this action scene. It's definitely a little messy, but it, it's, it's fun. I am into it. It is very messy. It is trying to have it both ways. Just on paper, or, you know, just on film, I guess I should say. This is awesome. To watch cars tumbling out of the car carrier and to have Marcus and Mike swerving to avoid them, that is neat. But then you cut to the inside of the car and Marcus is accidentally popping off and shooting the inside of Mike's dashboard on his Ferrari. And that's a comedic moment, but I don't want a comedic moment. Well, actually I kind of do because, you know, as I said, Marcus is still in awe of this. Like I'm enjoying those moments where Marcus is looking out the window at these cars flying by and Mike just wants him to shut up so he can keep driving. 
But it's going back and forth in a way that I'm not enjoying. I just want to focus on the cars. That's neat. Focus on the neat thing. And at some point, there's a a car that's hauling a, a boat, right? It's got like a trailer hitch with a boat on it. And you know, at some point, this boat's going to like, you know, go sideways and roll around and cars are going to hit it. Well, David, I don't know what the deal is. But sure enough, that happens. And this boat, it's almost like a magnet. Like the way that the car goes right into it, it was like it was sucked into it. And for some reason that like, I don't know what you call it, that fast instant boat explosion, it was fucking cool. And it was another mark out moment for me. I was on board. The boat. This is going to be my second mark out moment as well. You're absolutely right. That boat launches into that car like it's a fastball. And that was a JFC moment for me. And then to go from that boat destruction to a kablooey where cars are still trying to drive through the explosion or around the explosion. This was awesome. I liked it. Mark out moment number two. I think I laughed out loud and like punched my fist like, ha <laughs> when that happened. Which like, it's undeniable. Sometimes things going kablooey is fun. But David, not to be a wet blanket. I, I got a couple big problems with this action scene. Sure, this is the second action set piece of the movie, David, but we really haven't gotten the plot yet. Like, we don't, there's no stakes. Why do we care about these bad guys? You know, proportionality, like, is ecstasy worth this much? I don't think it is. I know they're bad boys, but I don't get the reasoning for going uh, Carmageddon on these, these fucking uh, Asians. And also, inside the car, the banter between Mike and Marcus, it's like, oh, for a million. It, just from the comedy perspective, everything they're doing is a fucking miss. I mean, mm-hmm. like, Martin Lawrence is a proven season stand-up, so I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't want to put all the blame on Will Smith, but I mean, uh, yeah, it's just... I feel like there's chemistry between them. They're just, it's just not on screen. You know, it's funny you say that. There really is a difference between Martin Lawrence's delivery, or I guess I should say his career, where you have to think quick on your feet. You have to be able to read the audience and pivot when necessary and just improvise, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Will Smith's just an actor. Well, he was a rapper, of course, but you know, then he became an actor. He doesn't quite have that improvisational skill And so you're watching someone who's really sharp banter with someone who's just trying to keep up. And you could tell this isn't very good. I used to make a joke. Sorry. I used to make a joke in reference to Iron Man 2. I used to call it Judd Apatow's Iron Man 2 because that movie felt so improvised. It felt maybe 30 minutes too long. I owe Iron Man 2 an apology. I should have been referring to Bad Boys 2. This is just improvisation with no real direction. Yeah, Will Smith is trying so hard to make Mike cool, he forgot to make Mike uh, fun or entertaining. Yeah, there's no dynamic between the two. Like I said, it's not like one is uptight and one is loose. They're both bad boys. They just (laughs) decide when they want to tag in and out of being the crazy one or being the sensible one or being the calm one. There's no consistency with these characters. Yeah, and look, I'm not defending Martin Lawrence's entire uh, career, but I'll say at least in this movie, I like Martin Lawrence. Same, sort of. I can tell that he's sort of mailing it in. I wish he wasn't, because I do like Martin Lawrence in movies and roles when he's not mailing it in, but he's doing all right in this movie, by my account. So, Mac, immediately after Carmageddon, Mike and Marcus trail Sid in the middle of her undercover operation and scold her for having a dangerous job. Okay? Mike and Marcus decide to solve Sid's case before she does in order to keep her out of danger. Okay? And then they also get yelled at by their Captain Howard, played by Joe Pantoliano, for being bad at their job, boys. Mike and Marcus break into the home of the Haitian gang leader and kill nearly everyone, but are able to find some surveillance footage that might reveal details of Johnny's smuggling operation. Mike and Marcus also get kicked out of a circuit city. So once that action set piece ends, uh, Sid, where she was going, was the drop-off point, 
where she was leaving this money for the Haitian gang. And Mike and Marcus roll up and they immediately start like, what are you doing? This is a dangerous job. And it's just like, dude, this operation, this undercover operation she's on, it's still going. You're two cops. Get the fuck out of here. Leave Sid alone, motherfuckers. Like, it was just like, God, screaming at my TV. Yeah, I think this movie wants to stand up and say, look at how feminist and progressive we are. We've got Gabrielle Union as a DEA agent. But you're treating her like, if I, if I may use a hot button issue of the day, you're treating her like a diversity hire. You're treating her as though she didn't get this job because of her merit. And in fact, Marcus will talk about that later in this movie. But like, they don't just give undercover assignments like this to anybody. You have to figure she's good at her job to get to this position. Like, you're just being assholes to her. And then Mike goes up to her, like, sensitive style. And he's like, hey, was this the first time using your gun? And she's like, mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, well, guess what, dude? She's fucking amazing, all right? Did you see what she just did? You're a bad boy, all right? She's not a bad boy yet, <laughs> but she's already, like, pulling off these fucking awesome moves. She's escaped from a Haitian gang. She kept her cool the entire time. Why are they treating her like a goddamn rookie? If she's a rookie, mm-hmm. she's fucking LeBron James. Get the fuck out of her way. So then we go back to police headquarters. Oh, here's Joey Pants. He is the police captain, and he is uh, not very funny, David. <laughs> Did you... Look, I think Joe Pantoliano is a, a good actor. He's great in The Sopranos. He's great in The Matrix. He's, he's not funny, David. He doesn't make me laugh, at least on screen. No, he's not generally funny. I will say that he does have a moment later in this movie that I enjoyed quite a bit, but it's mostly, it's him being frustrated at Mike and Marcus. And at that point in the movie, I was feeling that exact same way. But no, you hope that a good character actor like Joe Pantoliano can channel that 80s, 90s, grizzled police chief or, you know, that that put-upon police chief. But no, he's only shouting, and it's only as a setup for the payoff of the Woosah line again, because he's taking therapy too. It's the 2000s, Mac. Everybody's taking therapy, and it's ruining them all. Like, it, 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 this is a frustrating introduction to Joe Pantoliano. Yeah, when we first meet him, he's ripping into him, and I was like, okay, here we go. Like, he's these guys are bad boys, and they're going to they're gonna hear it from their captain. But then all of a sudden, he's like, ah, oh, well, what are you going to do? Like, this conversation is nowhere near it would be in reality. And at some moment, uh, Captain Howard, played by Joey Pants, he goes, he's like, thank God no cops died. But then three seconds later is, I got three cops in critical condition. Well, okay, that's not, no, you're, you're burying some of the information here. It's, it's not no cops died, everyone's okay. No cops died yet, is what it sounds like. Yeah. And then Mike gets a phone call, and it's, I guess, the Ferrari fix-it place, the Ferrari repair shop. And he learns it's going to be $12,000 to fix his dashboard. Uh, I'm sorry. After Carmageddon, open warfare in the city of Miami, instead of coming straight back to the police station or back to the other scene of the crime so you could like help out or file paperwork or interview witnesses or whatever, they're like, let's go ahead and take my car in already to the shop. Fuck you, Mike. He then asked for a reimbursement from the city. Oh, God. Yeah, he asked for reimbursement for the city because Marcus shot up his Ferrari and Joy Pants makes the point that that's why we have police cars. It's a small punch-up, but I would have really liked to have seen Mike and Marcus in a police car at some point. Almost like they got demoted. Almost like, hey, you know, we let you get away with a lot as bad boys. If you're making us look like assholes calling us out on drug bus where we're only getting two bags, then no, you don't get to drive your Ferrari around. You're stuck in a black and white. And I feel like, I don't know, this movie is letting these cops get away with too much. Yeah, but the stuff they're getting away with is not bad, right? Like, (laughs) driving your own Ferrari, that's not bad boy shit. That's rich boy shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. If these boys are bad, what they would do is they'd go to, like, the impound lot where there's, like, a bunch of evidence, and you're like, 
hey, who did this car belong to? And it was like, oh, uh, we got it from the Tapia gang. And it was like, well, guess what? I'm fucking taking it. Oh, bad boys. What are they going to do, right? But also in this briefing, Captain Howard mentions, he's like, I got kids dying in the street due to some super ecstasy. There we go. Jesus fucking Christ. Finally, something that is at least interesting about the plot. Some stakes. It's not just like a routine drug bust that these guys blew insanely out of proportion. It's like this ecstasy is like super potent, maybe super addictive. And at least, you know, maybe that's why that guy OD'd on it earlier. It's not because he already was, uh, he's doing like some speed balls in the parking lot before going to the club. Yeah. Here's a quick punch up. Make this ecstasy an epidemic. I want to see people dying in the streets in the middle of the afternoon because Captain Howard has a line here, you know, where he finally says like, I've got people dying in the streets. I don't care what you do. Just go do what you do. But I don't feel that. And we're already 45, almost an hour into this movie. And Mike and Marcus are just now being told about this. Like, like you said, there's no wait. We're almost an hour into this movie and we're just now getting to some kind of stakes. What's wrong with this movie? So Marcus and Mike, they end up at the shop of their informant. I don't know what this guy is selling. And they're like, hey, man, your information sucks. And, you know, he's like, oh, sorry, what are you going to do? And like, okay, well, here's what you're going to do. You need to tell us where this Haitian gang hangs out. And he's like, oh, that guy is too dangerous. That's going to cost extra. And instead of paying this informant, they, uh, in their minds, hilariously wreck this dude's shop. David, I'm not on their side in this. Like, it seems, again, out of proportion and not really fun way. Them wrecking the shop of this informant. Does anyone think this is funny? Are we supposed to think it's funny? I think there are some people out there who think this is funny. I think those people also don't have a particularly good sense of humor. The scene feels really labored and the results aren't very good because when Mike and Marcus show up to this guy's shop that he runs out of a side room of his house, I don't know, he sells candles and ecstasy. It's a very small little storefront, but they don't get the information that they want from him. So they decide to pull out this pre-rehearsed bit where they talk about, hey, me and my partner here, we're on the Miami PD dance team. Show him some of your moves. And he does this little like, it's like watching the Joker in Batman 89 destroy that art museum. And that also ruined that character too. But like, who is this for? Are you doing this to intimidate the guy you're trying to get information out of? No, you're doing it for an audience that you know exists watching this movie. But I'm not entertained by it. it this is a fucking cop movie. Yeah, and this guy, he didn't really have it coming. He wasn't like, I'm not going to help you. He wasn't rude to them. He just was like, that's extra dangerous. I'm going to need some more money. And instead, they're like, you know, shitty cops and harass this guy. David, do you like Mike in this movie? No, <laughs> I have no elaboration on that. I have no reason to like Mike right now. He He's this spoiled rich kid who happens to have a badge and he carries himself that way. There's, he's completely charmless. He's completely lacking in any sort of depth. Uh, no, I don't particularly like Mike. Yeah, I don't like him either. He's a fucking jerk. He's an asshole. He is a good action hero, but he's not good enough to warrant the rest of his behavior, right? Like, he's still <laughs> uh, destroying everything in his path. He's got the skills to rack up the kills, David, but he's also racking up the bills. Oh, you gotta pay those. Yeah, you gotta pay them. And those bills outweigh those skills. Does that make sense? It, it, it tracks. Yes, it does. With my conversion, absolutely. Second question, David. Do you like Marcus? I don't particularly, but I like him okay compared to Mike because at least Marcus has a want. At least Marcus knows this line of work isn't sustainable. The level at which we conduct this line of work isn't sustainable. I want out, but the, the parts where that fails Marcus, I'm going to blame the script on that. I'm not going to blame Martin Lawrence. He's doing a pretty decent job, all things considered. 
But it's it's the script that doesn't give Marcus any sort of consistency because one moment he's trying to plead with the Haitians here coming up in, in this shootout. You know, he's trying to plead for them to stop. You know, he just wants to some information from them. He says, we're not immigration. But he's still participating in this stuff. He's still shooting along with Mike. I, I don't know. I, I'm not as opposed to Marcus as I am Mike, but I'm not a huge fan of Marcus. Marcus at least feels put upon by some of this craziness. Like, he's not just, like, completely um, oblivious to it, how nuts things are getting. And I, I guess I do appreciate that with Marcus. So, no, I don't like Mike, but, yes, I do like Marcus. Anyway, Mike and Marcus show up at the hideout of the Haitian gang. And very quickly, they get into a shootout. And it's an action set piece we'll call Round We Go. And I say that, David, because this set piece has, I don't know, at least my main takeaway from this movie, what I remember most about watching Bad Boys 2, was the spinny camera evolved in this scene. Oh, yes, because in this shootout, the way the house is laid out, there's, you know, it's almost like there's two rooms adjoining each other connected by doors, you know, as rooms are. But the camera is going in and out of those doors and in and out of those rooms in such a way where it's circling the action. And it's really neat. I enjoyed how kinetic the shootout was. Again, I didn't quite know where everybody was in relation to each other, but it's a house. I, I can I can live with this shootout. See, I feel like I didn't know where people were because, you know, you have one side of the wall, Mike, the other side of the wall, the Haitian gangs. And because you're spinning around, you could see that they're like talking to each other through the wall. You're right, though. I, I do lose Marcus momentarily, but very quickly I feel like, oh, I, I know where he is. He's in that, you know, back room, kind of like off to the left of Mike, if Mike is <laughs> facing stage down. But mm. yeah, the spinny camera, the way it's spinning around, you're right, is very kinetic. I do wish they'd been a little bit more inventive with what was happening. Like the spinny camera is very cool, but we're just spinning around people and then it doesn't really like affect them. Like it'd be awesome if we see the Haitian gang as the camera goes 180 degrees around their side of the action. And as the camera crosses the equator, we see Mike, he's doing something. And then when we cross back over the Haitian side of the planet, they've now set up a rocket launcher, right? Or something like that. Like mm -hmm. there's a surprise, like the spinning is not just revealing people, it's revealing actions or escalation. I think that would have been awesome. But still, definitely uh, a cool camera uh, move and a cool trick. But then we go from there, we, you know, we get the shootout, we're down to one person uh, left alive. Uh, there's a pretty funny moment where Marcus is picking up corpses or like trying to interrogate corpses, but he can't get answers out of them because they're dead. But they do get this video camera and they take it to a nearby circuit city. No time to go back to the precinct where this is all private and they have plenty of equipment for it. Nah, nah, nah. Let's pull over and ask an employee and we'll plug this in and get some evidence and also some other footage. Yeah, and this employee, of course, it's a classic Michael Bay bit player. He's talking a mile a minute, making all kinds of lame jokes. He's like, I love hip hop music or whatever. And he plugs in his camera and he starts to show it on every TV in the place. And, you know, the gang members have filmed themselves like hanging out, smoking weed, uh, also fucking. And so now every camera in the store is, is showing some, basically some porn. And David, this is so kind of like dumb and predictable. I instinctively like reached for the remote to like fast forward. And I was like, oh no, I'm supposed to be watching this movie. <laughs> and eventually though, they get to footage of a funeral home, right? And they're like, oh, that's something that's interesting. Why is the Haitian gang filming, staking out this funeral home? Interesting. More about that later. But no time for that now because we have a moment in the Circuit City where Mike and Marcus decide to take a moment for themselves. They go into one of those rooms that where you could test speakers, you know, where they've got like a couch and you're surrounded by uh, by audio equipment. 
But there's also a, a live camera in there that happens to be recording and broadcasting out to the store. And it catches Mike and Marcus talking about um, their partnership, I guess. But we're catching the conversation at a moment where a lot can be misconstrued because they're talking about Marcus getting shot in the in the posterior. And he's talking about how Mike did that thing to his ass and he's still sore for days. And it's supposed to be this overtly homoerotic comedic bit. I get it. I don't like it. I get why the movie did it. I'm just going to let that live. David, look, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. At the beginning of this little bit here, when the camera turns on and he's like, damn, Mike, what you did to my ass, I'm sore for days. And everyone's like, what the fuck? I did laugh. I thought like, oh, I get it. That's funny. And then, you know, look, look, I, I don't think it's great, but it, I can't deny I laughed at it. And then as it keeps going, it's like, it's just bad, right? He's like, man, the way you popped off in me fucked up my nervous system. Hey, that's not how sex works, all right? No <laughs> amount of cum sprayed up someone is going to fuck up their nervous system. I am sorry. And commenting on this camera are like various people around the stores. David, this movie takes place in Miami. Uh, as I understand, there's a very vibrant LGBTQ community down there. And somehow this movie picked the, no offense, the ugliest two gay guys in Miami to be these characters. <laughs> and they're like, you know, he's pouring his heart out to him. And it's like, man, I just get the feeling that these guys are in here for Michael Bay to laugh at him. I don't fucking trust Michael Bay on this. And yeah, I wish he just would not go for these kind of jokes because I don't trust Michael Bay to pull them off with any kind of class. No, it, you're absolutely right. It, I would say this about nearly every character in a Michael Bay movie, but it feels like Michael Bay is making fun of these two gentlemen. It also feels like he's making fun of a lady who comes up to kind of put a button on the scene where... Uh, she's this angry mother and she's dragging her kid along and she chides the electronic store for showing, quote, homo shows. And, and I, I'm not quite sure why you need this. Oh, she also tags it by saying you two need Jesus. Okay, again, write something funnier. If you want to present this as an awkward situation, this is just lazy joke writing. Yeah, it's like let's slam on the brakes of this movie for some homophobic jokes. And I got to say, not a fan. Yeah, nobody should be. But Mac, Mike, and Marcus get some more information about Johnny's mortuary operation from the department's tech guy, Fletcher, played by NBA legend John Sally. Fletcher warns Mike and Marcus to lay off Johnny, who has a history of being wrongfully arrested. Don't worry, everybody. Mike and Marcus have a plan to disguise themselves as exterminators and plant wires in Johnny's home. Oh, Johnny's house has rats and they're eating all of Johnny's loose cash. <sighs> NBA legend and broadcaster, a member of the... Detroit Bad Boys uh, era Pistons team, oh. John Sally. Why is he in this fucking movie? <laughs> okay. Like besides that one Bad Boys connection, I don't get it. Why is John Sally playing a nerd in this movie, right? The other thing about John Sally is he's fucking huge. He's a giant, right? He played center or power forward. And so in order to be seated lower than Martin Lawrence, it's got to be like when uh, puppeteer, like Muppeteers work with real people. We're like, oh, the bottom of the stage is cut out. And the, you know, the Muppeteer reaches his hand up right there. So it's the same height as Michael Caine. Like, I feel, I feel like that's <laughs> what's going on here. Plus, it's like, you can obviously tell he's taller than Martin Lawrence. His head is three times as big as Martin Lawrence and Will Smith. Why? Why does John Sally in there? Okay, the only thing I can think is because he did play for the Heat for a few years. And maybe he has a home in Miami or something like that. It's not like he has this megastar post-NBA career. It's not like he's Charlie's Angels' own Michael Strahan in a movie where you're like, oh, that's beloved daytime talk show host Michael Strahan. This is one of the hosts of the Best Damn Sports Show. Who gives a shit 
Like, there is no reason for John Sally to be in this movie unless he's working for free. The only thing I can think of is that Bad Boys connection. If he's maybe the best actor in the Bad Boys team. I mean, I know Dennis Rodman has been in more movies, but there's no way in hell Dennis Rodman reads as a tech guy at a police station. It took me right out of the movie. You might as well have, like, had Shaquille O'Neal playing, like, a, a guy who makes uh, balloon animals, right? It just was like, that's, that's Shaq, that's fucking Shaq. <laughs> Maybe most people didn't even realize it was John Sally. Uh, I don't know. Then why? Why bother? <laughs> so Peter Stormare, Alexi, right? He wants to renegotiate his contract. And so he shows him to Johnny Tapia's house. And they sit down together. And Alexi's like, oh, uh, I need my number two guy. Uh, before we start negotiating, I need him in here. And, he, and Johnny Tapia's like, oh, yeah, I'll have him brought in. They bring in a barrel. Turns out Johnny Tapia chopped up. Alexi's number two dude into little bits and shoved him in a barrel. Oh my goodness. David, this villain is paper thin, right? He's a fucking clown. <laughs> Here's what I know about him. The entire time he looks sweaty and strung out. And you know what a paper thin, like unthreatening villain he is? He's such a weak villain that this is what they had to do in order to make him look tough, right? He couldn't have just done it with acting or dialogue or the way he interacts with people. In order to sell this bad guy as any kind of substantial threat, they had to have him chop up someone and put him in a barrel. Like, this is uh, this is overcompensating, if I've ever seen it. It's overcompensating and somehow under-delivering because it's not even... It's, it's taking the shortcut route to making this villain evil. Because Joseph, if you remember from earlier on in the movie, he was the one who miscounted the, the stack of bills that he gave to Sid. So he was a, you know, when you got to see him on screen, he's a big dude. He's muscly. He looks like he could probably handle himself in a fight. So how does Johnny Tapia get the jump on him? All we see is we get Mike going through the house in an exterminator disguise and he walks into this industrial kitchen and, and he sees blood everywhere. Like you can't skip the steps that make us believe that Johnny is a formidable villain I don't, I, this movie is flustering me, Mac. I'm losing words. Here's a quick punch up, right? Maybe Alexi's like, oh, uh, Yosef is supposed to meet me here. It's like, yeah, I'll have him brought in. Uh, but first, uh, why do you in, enjoy this delicious like Cuban sandwich, right? Or maybe some vaca frita, right? Or maybe some delicious polpetta. <laughs> Alexi's like, this is the most succulent, delicious food I've ever eaten. And then Johnny Tappy's like, yeah, guess what? I killed Sergei. He's in your fucking food. And then Alexi's like, gross. <laughs> But then Johnny Tappy walks over to him and he picks up that Cuban sandwich and he takes a big old chunk out of it. And he's like, I'll fucking eat your family. Like that would be a little bit more impressive. But instead, then he like threatens his kids. He's like, oh, here's your kid uh, mm -hmm. soccer game. Here's your wife. I'll kill them too. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I bet you will. But all you're doing is basically scowling at some photos. Real tough. Oh, but even in that moment, he gives up his leverage because he shows Alexi pictures of his wife and son. And he's like, maybe I'll stalk your wife. Maybe I'll stalk your soccer-playing son. You see, Alexi, my daughter knows your son. Well, guess what? Your daughter's going to be fucking dead now, too, you dumb shit. Like, why would you even say anything like that? Oh, so you're from Cuba. Call it football. Uh, but Mike and Marcus <laughs> enter the building, you know, because uh, they, they're pretending to be exterminators. And like, yeah, we'll, we'll get rid of the cockroaches. And the guy's like, we have rats. That's a rat problem. They're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, we mean rats. They're just clowns the entire time clowning around. And... Marcus hates rats, and so he's already freaking out. And then at some point, he encounters two rats, and these rats are fucking, David. I mean, I don't know who put this in the script. I don't know why it's in this. I can't decide whether I like it or not. But you know what I do like about it is Martin Lawrence is like, these rats, they fuck like we do. 
Because the rats are not having sex doggy style. The rats are having sex in the missionary position. I do like this. Never mind. I figured it out. It's so stupid. I like it. I wish the dumb, like, tactical stuff. Maybe this movie should be dumber. Maybe that's my overall punch up. Embrace how fucking stupid this movie is. Yes, thank you. Because this scene does not belong unless you make the whole movie like this scene. Like, imagine being the person who made the rat puppets for this scene. And you have to explain to people, oh, hey, I worked on Bad Boys too. Oh, what'd you do? I made the rats. But Mike and Marcus figure out that something's going wrong at this place. Uh, Johnny Tapia's gang is wise to the fact that they're not exterminators. They think they are gangbangers from earlier, uh, is what they call mm-hmm. them. And so Mike and Marcus beat it. And Johnny Tapia's like, he's like, who let these guys in here? Who's wrote you, Roberto? So Johnny is going to kill Roberto in this moment because Roberto put his daughter in danger. In fact, he says so much. Uh, let's play this audio clip. I want you to listen to this exchange that Johnny has with Roberto and later uh, with his mom. How did this thing happen? I don't know. Call the rat people, these guys showed up. Maybe you're the rat, huh? They tried to steal from me. You let them into my mother's house. Johnny, hey, no. I would never. Nobody puts in danger my daughter, my mother. Or my money. <coughs> Send him to the mortuary. Johnny! Johnny, what happened to Roberto? He killed himself, mama. Seve un tiro. Ay. Very sad. Make sure I'm writing last letter to his mother. I'll do it. Okay, bye. So, Mac, I wanted to play the first part of that where Johnny says, nobody puts my daughter in danger because this is the villain of our movie. He's supposed to be menacing. He's supposed to be evil. He's supposed to be some sort of formidable. But the way this is delivered is so limp and so underwhelming. And we are halfway through this movie. This is another reason why this movie doesn't work. I don't give a shit about this villain. He does not frighten me at all. No, he just seems high. I will say, though, that when the mom comes out, it's like, what happened to Roberto? And Johnny's like, oh, he killed himself, mama. And the mom instantly buys it. I did think that was very funny. Again. Gags. I'm okay with gags. Just get this other shit out of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Mike and Marcus are back at police headquarters and they need some help on this operation. So they call in some uh, Cuban cops who they were racist earlier in the movie. And these Cuban cops come in with some racism of their own. And I got to say, again, these, these racist jokes, there's no cleverness to them, whatever. They're not trying to be funny. It's just fucking mean. I'm not saying like, oh, we need some hilarious racism in here. But at least, like, if these two people are trying to make jokes at each other, they should indeed be jokes. Well, here's what I'll say. It's even worse because it's presented as though it's a bonding element between the two because the Cuban cops come in, they make black jokes to Mike and Marcus. Mike and Marcus return with some unfortunate immigration jokes. And the Cuban officers are are ready to, like, hey, that's the line. Come on, that's too far. But then Mike jumps and he says, hey, all right, let's, let's cut the crap. No bullshit. We need your help. And the Cuban officers are okay with that. They're ready to help because of this bonding moment they had. They're just bros being bros, talking shit to each other. No, this does not work for me. Yeah, I'd maybe feel better about this scene if the uh, screenwriters weren't Ron, Shelton, and Jerry Stahl. But then John Sally's character is like, oh, I got something for you. Or here's something. And then Mike responds, what do you got, dickhead? What the fuck? God damn it. Yeah. This guy sucks. Mike sucks. This is officially where I'm completely off board with Mike. 
Yeah, he's a bad boy, all right. He's a bad human being. <laughs> but but that wouldn't sell on a poster, so they had to call this bad boys instead. But this whole time, Sid is still undercover, and she's been like meeting with Johnny to try and get deeper into his operation. Yeah, she's going to meet with Johnny on the beach, away from the prying ears of the DEA, where Johnny's going to offer her a job as his money launderer. Mike and Marcus meet with Sid while she's still undercover to basically scold her some more. And then they bail out helpful bigot Floyd Poteet, played by Michael Shannon, to see if he can help them locate Johnny's smuggling operation. Thankfully, Johnny decides to ramp up his operation and picks up a bunch of drug coffins. This leads to another high-speed chase and a road choked with corpses. So we start on the beach with Sid and Johnny. Johnny's going to lure Sid out into the water because if she's wearing a wire, it'll fritz out and the people in the van won't be able to pick up what they're saying. But Sid arrives to the meeting with Johnny, offering him a Bacardi Mojito. We saw Sky Vodka earlier in the club. We now get a cool, refreshing Bacardi Mojito. Like, is this movie short on cash? Do you really need to do all of these uh, advertisements? Like, just, I'm not into this movie to begin with, but if I'm not invested in the movie anyway, stuff like this is really going to take me out of it. I don't know, David. I thought that five-minute scene where they everyone in the movie enjoyed a delicious Fanta orange, I thought that was great. But yeah, so Mike and Marcus are scolding Sid, saying that she's in too much danger. And Marcus tells his sister that she's not a real DEA agent, that she's just a honeypot, which, oh my God, that kind of shit, it's like, oh, uh, Sid and Marcus uh, never spoke again after that. Like, that's the kind of thing. It's, it's super insulting. Oh boy. And then Mike and Marcus are doing a stakeout here and they're like talking about their shit. And I don't care. I don't fucking care about like their little like thing between them. They feel like arguing kids in the back seat, right? You just want to turn around and be like, shut the fuck up, bad boys. I'll turn this movie around. Especially when you consider that this is the main conflict between these two. Like their tensions are escalating so much. But now the question is, oh, can they do their job together? Can they work as bad boys? But again, this has nothing to do with the case. This is just their personal bullshit. I do not care. But then Mike and Marcus, they are in a car chase again, and they're chasing this uh, hearse that's got some bodies in it. Wait, is it a hearse or is it a van? At this, It's a van, right? It is a van. Yes, that's right. And the corpses start falling out and hitting the road. And an action set piece will call it, the bodies hit the road. Not very creative. I'm sorry. But I think this was kind of fun, at least. At some point, a corpse falls out and the head pops off like it's a toy. <laughs> and it was such an obvious like dummy or model or mannequin hitting the ground that it made me laugh. I'm okay with that. Let's Again, let's be stupid here. I wanted to be okay with it. I truly did. I was like, oh, there is something about corpses just falling on the road that feels like it should be funny. This movie has blown so much goodwill with me, though, that I can't meet it there. But yeah, like... Why can't this be like a hot fuzz type of action comedy? Why can't this be like a The Other Guys type of action comedy where something so absurd happens like corpses falling on the road that it is funny? But no, we're balancing this with a super serious action movie. And just give credit to Martin Lawrence here because he has to do so much, oh no, what's happening acting while in a car, right? Like that's most of this movie for Martin Lawrence is him in a car just freaking out. And that's gotta be just exhausting. Like, take three of that, and it's just of any scene, and I'd already be like, hey, I think you got it, right? So uh, I will give a little credit to him. He, he's definitely put in the work in terms of, like, having to react to, uh, you know, fake terror. Yes, you're not wrong. I have enjoyed Martin Lawrence's car acting in this movie, but I will say this. I don't get the sense that Will Smith and Martin Lawrence are in any of the cars taking place in, this, in the shot or in the scene. 
you know, for Michael Bay to be this wonderful action director, to be such a good action director, I get the feeling that Martin Lawrence and Will Smith are sitting in a stationary car. There's nothing to connect them and their performances to the action going on. And like, that's movie making 101. It it was a problem I had with Mission Impossible 2 also, where we talked about Tom Cruise Mm -hmm. doing a lot of his own stunts. But if you shoot it in such a way that you can't be impressed by Tom Cruise doing his own stunts, then why are you even bothering? And that's sort of what these car shots feel like. But Captain Howard returns to yell at Mike and Marcus some more and to let Poteet out of their trunk. Mike and Marcus return home to hassle some poor kid taking Marcus's daughter out on a date. Anyway, the bad boys also get permission to snoop around Johnny's mortuary looking for evidence that would justify a warrant. What they find are dead bodies full of drugs. Mike and Marcus hustle over to Captain Howard's house to share the news, but uh uh-oh, Marcus accidentally swallowed some X and he is rolling. So let's start off this chunk. I do want to play some audio. This is going to be Captain Howard losing his mess at Mike and Marcus. He's had one too many corpses on the road, and he freaks out. Do you both wake up in the morning, call each other up? Good morning, Marcus. Good morning, Mike. How you doing? Hi. So how are we going to fuck up the captain's life today? Gee, I don't know. I don't know. Ooh, look over there. Let's kill three fat people and leave them on the street. Hey, they were dead before we ran over them. It doesn't matter whether they were dead or not. God damn it. Every time you leave a corpse on the street, I have to get these forensic coroner guys to come in to see what happened. Then I got to get detectives, see, detecting shit. Then I got to get these forensic guys to stick them back in the fucking bag. I just want to give this credit because, you know, I did enjoy Joe Pantoliano at parts in this movie, but I was also enjoying this moment because I was sharing his frustration. I have had enough with Mike and Marcus by this point, so I was glad someone was my surrogate. Yeah, having an audience surrogate is definitely missing from this movie. I do feel like Marcus does that at some point or at various points in the movie. But, you know, it, it's nice. It's nice to have someone be like, this is fucking crazy when things are going crazy. Just, uh, you know, let the audience know, hey, we, we're, we know what we're doing. We're in control here. Not having people be like, this is normal, which is sometimes what happens. So then Mike and Marcus, they return home and Marcus, his daughter is like, oh, my uh, date's coming over. Marcus's wife is like, Marcus, be nice to him. And he's like, I'll be nice to him. And this kid shows up, Reggie. And Marcus is like, I'm going to fucking kill you if you, you know, what the fuck is your name? Fuck you. And Mike comes up and he's got a gun and he's shoving a gun in Reggie's face. Now, David, I watched this on uh, Amazon Prime and the little like x-ray fact thing popped up and it. The very first fact, I didn't even start the movie, and it was talking about the scene, which at the time was confusing, because I'm like, what is the scene you're talking about? But apparently this actor that played Reggie, Michael Bay told him, like, hey, you're not allowed to make eye contact with Martin Lawrence. Like, don't make eye contact with him. And then Martin Lawrence was like a fucking dick to him the entire day or whatever he shot. So he would try to get some, like, real fear out of Reggie. Method acting only works if everyone's in on it. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. if someone is not in on it, then it's like a jackass, right? Like, first of all, this scene, uh, n- not funny. It's just them being like assholes some more. I don't know, man. Yeah, you know, you, one of the things you hope a director can do is get a good performance out of someone. Direct them to a good performance. Don't trick them. Don't tell them afterwards, ah, we're just fucking with you to make sure we got that fear in your eyes. Like, no, that's a shitty director. And then this scene, I don't know what Will Smith is doing but I hope he's embarrassed by it. There's something really offensive about whatever bit Will Smith is trying to do here. I don't know why he made the choices he did in this scene. 
But the whole thing comes off as really upsetting. Well, he's taking uh, pulls off of a bottle of liquor, and I think he's supposed to be acting drunk, but he's not doing it. The only vibe I get from Will Smith is that he maybe thinks this scene is stupid and doesn't want to be in it. Or at some point, he's like, oh, is it like ludicrous? Get the fuck out of my way. But the way he's doing it makes me think he doesn't like ludicrous, even though Mm -hmm. that song starts playing underneath the scene. I don't know. I didn't like it. No. And it's also the third act of this movie. Why are we spending this time here? We have drugs to bust. So Mike and Marcus get permission to snoop around this mortuary. They don't get a warrant. They just get, okay. And in there, they're (laughs) like, look, we think the drugs are in these corpses. We got to actually prove it now. And so they're in the mortuary. You know, it's after hours. They're sneaking around. You know, they're pulling the sheets off these corpses that are like lying there. Sure enough, you know, Mike reaches his hand inside, or maybe it was Marcus did it first, I don't care. They reach inside a corpse and they pull out bags of pills. Like, yes, look, we got it. Awesome. Great. Search the others. And at some point, Marcus pulls a sheet off of one corpse and it's a attractive naked lady corpse with very big boobs. And Marcus is like, hey, Mike, don't be looking at the corpse that way. And Mike's like, I'm not looking at the corpse anyway. He's like, yeah, you are, man. Show some respect. Cover up those corpse titties or whatever. David, imagine having that role. You know what I mean? Imagine being <laughs> yeah. the actress cast to be big titty corpse. Just feel so bad for that person. Do you tell your friends about it? Are you happy with that? I have to imagine so. I think if if you know that you're going to be in a Michael Bay movie, you're just ready to roll with anything. I think I think you take that as a point of pride. I hope they bought her like three cars. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, for real, yeah. But Marcus, he's got a weak stomach, right? <laughs> or just a normal stomach. And so he's starting to throw up and he's like, I'm going to have a glass of water, you know, just to, you know, I don't know, settle my stomach, cleanse my mouth, whatever. But David, something's gone wrong with his water. That's right. Somehow, inexplicably, I do not remember, nor do I care, but Mike propels a couple of tabs of X into this glass that Marcus uses to get some water. So Marcus ends up drinking two tabs of X. You know, this X that has been killing people from overdoses? Well, Marcus is rolling too deep now, and so (laughs) I guess he'll be dead soon. Yeah, (laughs) go to the captain's office, and Mike is like trying to hide the fact that Marcus is high, but Marcus is like, I could taste your shirt or whatever. And eventually they have to tell the captain what happened. And they're on the phone with poison control. And they're like, poison control says, keep him cool. Or it's like, it's casual, like a nothing thing or whatever. And look, David, if you want to have this scene, go for it. Right. The problem is that there's an hour left in this movie. So like we're putting on the brakes to do like comedy when this movie still got a lot of track delay, you know? And it's like, look, man, this is fine. But then I don't know. It's either you just, it just tries. It does a lot. This movie is a lot. This movie is trying to be something for everybody, but it's never met more than four people. But the captain is convinced by the pictures that Mike took of the corpses with the drugs in him. And so he's ready to uh, authorize the operation to take down Johnny Tapio. That's right, Mac. And after Sid meets Johnny's mother, the DEA is ready to pounce on Johnny. But here comes the Miami PD, also ready to pounce on Johnny. But also here comes the Lexi, that's Peter Stormare's character in case you forgot, ready to straight up kill Johnny. Johnny manages to slip away from everyone and take Sid hostage. Looks like shit has finally become real. Without Miami PD's support for a Sid rescue, looks like it's up to Mike and Marcus and some ex-Delta Force just looking for a good time. So David, the cops show up and they're about to go in and DEA is there and like, what the fuck are you doing here, cops? Look, I understand that they're running their own operations. And Sid was like, 
we don't tell the uh, cops anything because they got too many leaks. But there has to be communication on some level. Because right now, Mike and Marcus already know the DA are investigating it. So for them to just like, I guess, forget that, it's just, I don't know. It's like, Mm -hmm. again, this realism suddenly doesn't feel real. Yes, these decisions exist for the machinations of the movie, and we as audience members are getting excited. Uh Uh-oh, DEA and the Miami Police Department are here? And Alexi's here? Wow, this is going to go crazy, but we didn't earn our way here. We all just got thrown together here, and we have to just live with it. So, Mac, in this moment, everyone's converging on Johnny's house. Let me ask you, since we're, like you said, almost an hour left in this movie— are you rooting for anyone in this movie at this point? And if so, who are you rooting for? No, not really. You know, because the the villain doesn't feel like an obstacle. I think at this point, Mike and Marcus have told each other their secrets and they don't really care. They're just like, fine, fine, you do fine. I mean, I guess I'm rooting for Sid, you know, but it, it just seems like, you know, to hurt for to pull off a successful operation, no one else's problems seem that big. Yeah, I'm rooting for Sid because I want her to succeed in a way that her brother and her boyfriend didn't think she would. But in this moment, I'm also rooting for Alexi because Alexi shows up at Johnny's house. You can tell he's kind of coked out of his mind or drunk out of his mind something, but he's taking the death of Yosef Hard so much so that Alexi has showed up with just this giant gun ready to kill Johnny. And that is the most realistic character in this movie because everyone else is so underwhelming because they're playing to a serious movie. But here comes Peter Stormare. Peter Stormare wants to be in a Peter Stormare movie. He's the only one I want to see get rewarded. I'd love to see him kill Johnny or get some sort of comeuppance. But that's not the sign of a good movie where you're rooting for a tertiary villain. Like, this is this is bad. Yeah, if every team in this movie is like an agent of chaos. Well, not the DEA. They don't seem to be. But like, it, it just, it's, it's too much. But yes, somehow, you know, Johnny Tapia, he figures out Sid is DEA. And, you know, Alexi comes in, the DEA comes in, uh, Miami PD, everything goes crazy. Johnny Tapia escapes and he's got a hostage. And Mike and Marcus find out that hostage is Sid. And at this moment, we get a full Michael Bay classic spinny shot. You know, the lighting is fucking awesome. Mike and Marcus are looking at the distance and they deliver the classic line. Let's hear it. Shit just got real. Look, David, I don't remember how long into the movie this is, but at this point, the stakes don't really feel like anything to me, and I'm kind of um, frustrated with this movie, but I'm not made out of stone, David. When he said that, <laughs> God damn it, it was, I mark it out again. It's just the camera, the line, it just works. It works. Why doesn't the rest of this movie work like this line? Well, because it's very simple, and by that I mean the setup of it is simple. Right, Because right before this moment, Mike and Marcus get a phone call from Johnny. He has escaped to his plane somehow and he's taken Sid with him and so he calls them up and he says you have a hundred million dollars of my money I have your sister you have 48 hours finally some stakes finally something that I could root for Mike and Marcus for so I didn't quite mark out in this moment but I give the movie credit for timing this line at just the right moment like this is if I'm ever going to be invested in their adventures this is the moment I appreciate that shit just got real, but shit should have gotten real an hour ago because now that there are stakes and like in a clear objective, like the movie just blazes through it. Like all of a sudden we're like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of like the last scenes of Game of Thrones where we need a journey across the sea. Next scene, we're here. Like it's suddenly kind of like that. Like the, um, I don't know who it is, DEA, FBI, whatever. They meet with the Miami police tomorrow and they're like, look, we're not going to be able to negotiate. 
you know, with, with Cuban, we're not going to be able to extradite this guy. And so Marcus and Mike are in like a side room by themselves. And they're like, you know, they kind of decide, fuck it. We're going to go into Cuba and get her back. And Mike says to him, hey, we ride together. We die together. And again, this would work if we didn't waste so much fucking time getting to this moment. If we didn't waste so much time getting to this mm-hmm. moment and if their conflict wasn't artificial, if it wasn't personal, you know, because there's nothing in the action of this movie that tells me that Marcus and Mike aren't going to ride together, die together. We've seen them. We've seen them ride together throughout this whole movie. Marcus might have a sour face about it or a sour feeling about it, but no, they're buds to the end. That's the one thing about this movie I actually get. So yeah, this line doesn't really hit the way they think it does. This should be the unifying line. This should be the thing that Mike needs to say to get Marcus on the team. They're on the same team. They just fucking hate each other, and so do I. So it looks like Mike and Marcus are going to go in alone. Uh Uh-oh, no, they're not. Here comes the rest of the TNT, right? The tactical narcotics team. Only problem is I don't remember any of these dudes because the movie spent no time letting us get to know these guys. So when they show up, it might as well have been like extras. And I'm like, oh, cool. Are you guys like you? We don't care about you. And then here comes Captain Howard. He's got some help, too. I brought you a little care package from my friends over at the CIA. They want to help. And don't ask me. They're spies. Oh, my goodness, David. I roll my fucking eyes at this line. It's like all of a sudden somebody being like, hey, I asked my friends, don't worry, they're mega bears. You know, like, oh, okay, great. It just, it felt uh, stupid. It felt stupid, but inexplicably also felt like a better movie is showing up. Like, this will be my second Other Guys reference of this episode, but it feels like the actual good cops and the other guys are showing up to take over for Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg, where it's like Sam Jackson and The Rock are like, okay, we've got this third act, we'll take it from here. And it's like, why didn't we just spend the whole movie with these guys? Jesus. Yeah, some member of the TNT is like, us ex-Delta Force guys are pretty crazy. I'm like, oh, are you? We don't know you. And then a guy who's like actual Delta Force or something shows up and he's like, requesting permission to tag along. Bitch, we don't know you. You know what I mean? <laughs> like the only way that works is if that's a celebrity cameo, right? If that's like Liam Neeson. Because if it's just some random dude, then when he shows up, we're not like, oh, fuck, here comes Gandalf, right? Cresting the Battle of Helm's Deep on the third day. No, you're just some asshole. Yeah. Oh, but Mac, Mike and Marcus are airlifted into Cuba, where they meet up with a gang of anti-Castro and anti-Johnny revolutionaries who have a map of the secret tunnels under Johnny's Cuban estate. There's a shootout at Johnny's place. The whole house goes kablooey. But here comes the Cuban military to take out Mike and Marcus. Mike and Marcus book it to Gitmo and American soil, but here comes the Cuban army in hot pursuit. This movie is going off the rails. Yeah, all of a sudden we're in Cuba. All of a sudden we're in a different movie, right? Because I feel like this operation should have like already been happening. They're like, oh no, we're an hour <laughs> into our movie and here come the bad boys. This ending is nuts. It does feel super rushed. We cut to the inside of Johnny's mansion and he's looking at some artwork and his daughter who they made fun of earlier for uh, being overweight, which why the fuck are we making fun of a child's weight? Go fuck yourself, movie. She points out that the artwork is the last, based on the Last Supper. And Johnny's like, what? I didn't know this. What is the point of this scene other to make Johnny look stupid again? I have no idea. My, I have a theory. I think this was supposed to be one gag, but that gag didn't work, and so they pivoted. Because if you look at the painting, Johnny's first bone of contention is that he looks like Jesus. And so if you just leave that alone, that could be even funnier than the gag they used because it's this guy who sees himself as Christ, 
but to not know that it's Christ in the Last Supper, to have a general ignorance of what the Last Supper is, I do not understand. It makes no sense. Yeah, it's really confusing. And so the bad boys, you know, they're part of this, um, like, insta-black ops plan, right? Just, like, pour water on it and then watch it grow. And this plan has so many moving parts, including this dude who's, like, operating an RC car. Like, it's a little, like, remote-controlled car. It's got a camera and a bomb on it. And we spend a lot of time, like, a lot of screen time on this dude as he goes through this operation. Which, again, if we spent any time getting to know this fucking team, this might resonate. But right now, it feels like... Right now, it feels like, where are Mike and Marcus? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And it wouldn't feel that way if this guy was also somebody. But because he's a rando, it, it feels like uh, like the movie's sort of on pause. Yeah. I, it makes me realize that I wished Mike and Marcus were one entity and the X-Deltas were another entity. And the conflict was between Mike and Marcus and the X-Deltas. And they came together in this third act. That would have meant something, but it's too late now. Yeah, like maybe instead of trading racist insults with those other cops, like there was the other members of the TNT were like mad at Mike and Marcus. They're like, you Mm -hmm. bad boys play by your own rules. You're bad boys. We're good boys. And now the good boys were like, damn it, bad boys. Like they rip off their badges. Like we're going to Cuba too. We're bad boys too. And it's like, oh shit, everyone's a bad boy. I love it. But that did not happen. But the, the members of the gang are playing volleyball or soccer or something like that. And the RC car's got a bomb on it. It blows up. Here comes our heroes. It's another action set piece we'll call War on Cuba. That's right. This is, oh God, I'm going through my notes now. I don't even know. Um, It's just another fight. It's another chase. Actually, I'll tell you what. My memory's a little foggy, but I do know that I had a third markout moment here because we've already blown up Johnny's house. We, uh, We already, you know, had a shootout there. It was, a, it was actually a very cool shootout. I was rooting for the X-Deltas more than I've rooted for Mike and Marcus in this movie. The house explodes. It's very impressive. Mike and Marcus get into a Hummer and book it to Guantanamo. They want to be able to make it to American soil while the military is chasing them. I marked out because at some point, Mike and Marcus drive this Hummer through an entire neighborhood of shacks. You know, I think the dialogue says something like, oh, these are drug shacks. It's okay to destroy them. But the reasoning for destroying them aside, I did enjoy this as a stunt. I did did enjoy this as a part of the movie. They destroy the fuck out of those shacks. Of course I'm going to mark out at that. That'll be number three for me. <laughs> but when this crew is attacking Johnny Tapia's house or compound, at some point they fire a rocket launcher into the house. Do, do they know where Sid is? Do they know like <laughs> she's being held here? Because otherwise they're like, oh, bad news, uh, guys. We just blew up Sid with a fucking rocket. I don't know. Credit to the movie, though. They did make... The most out of the explosion, it wasn't just one big explosion of this house. It was a series of explosions, so they got their money's worth. But the Delta crew or whatever they are, the TNT guys, everybody, they're like, oh, no, here comes the Cuban military. This is an international incident. We got to book it. Mike and Marcus do not make it into the tunnels in time. And so they're like, "Uh oh, our only chance to get out of here now is we got to do what? We got to haul ass to Guantanamo. So Mike and Marcus make it to Guantanamo, but Johnny doesn't care about international law and holds Mike hostage. Marcus proves he's still crazy enough to be a bad boy and shoots Johnny dead. Mike and Sid make out in a minefield, and Marcus gives them his blessing. So again, another car chase. It does lead to almost right to the edge of uh, Guantanamo Bay, where the American soldiers there open fire because they don't know the bad boys are bad boys. They just see a fucking Humvee, you know, with weapons hurling towards them. And in one moment, uh, we do see Johnny get the better of, of our heroes, right? He's got a gun on Mike. And he's a bad guy in a movie, though, David. So instead of instantly killing Mike, he's like, 
time to like savor the moment and threaten you a little bit. The other thing, though, is that uh, where Sid and Marcus are standing is a fucking minefield, right? That's right. So that's manufactured action, right? They have to be careful where they step. There's a moment where I think Sid or Mike, I forget, one of them has to toss their gun. Oh, it's Sid because she says, I'm going to toss his gun right at your feet at that mine. It's like, dude, we you could have just, you didn't have to fucking say it. We could have just seen it happen. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. So then Marcus gets the headshot on Johnny. It's a good shot. Marcus is a killer again. Hooray. And then Johnny falls and blows up. Sure. Why not? I did like that explosion. I do like how crazy it was that they invaded Cuba. I wish that they could have chopped an hour out of this movie. So where this Cuban ending wouldn't feel so rushed. It would have felt like the climax of the movie instead of like all this other stuff or whatever. By the way, I guess this action set piece is called the end of real shit. Because <laughs> shit has gotten real, but now shit is done. And that is the end of Bad Boys 2. All right, David, how many markout moments did you have? How many moms in Bad Boys 2? Mac, I still had three markout moments. How about you? Three as well. David, is this someone's favorite movie? I think so. Of course it is. It has enough to be someone's favorite movie, but it also reminds me of like... Think of the worst bar in Austin. You don't have to name it unless there's one that you have a grudge against. I know there's a a racist one on Rainy Street, and then I think Kung Fu Saloon would let white dudes in with shorts, but not black dudes. Oh, terrific. Okay. Well, let's draw that correlation, because if there are terrible bars out there in the world, and people love those bars, I imagine someone loves this movie, because it's a terrible fucking movie, but if it entertained them, God bless them. I hope it's not someone's favorite movie. That's all I'll say. (laughs) All right, time for some punch-ups. David, we're the ultimate script doctors. Everybody knows that. Is there any way to punch up this movie? How would you punch it up? How would you fix it? I've got a few. There are some pretty widespread changes. The first one I have is I would like to see this movie slash the budget. And I know we've talked about this in the past where we really try not to bring financials into the conversation, whether it be budget or whether it be how much it made or how much it lost or anything like that. But this movie cost $130 million to make in 2003 money when I think it was like Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines came out this year at $160 million budget. But where did that money go? Because when it's all said and done, I truly don't mind that this movie is what it is. I mind that it cost as much as it did to be what it was. Like if this is a $40 million movie, you can kind of forgive a cheap script or a cheap villain or cheap performances by Martin Lawrence and Will Smith. Even the directing is cheap. Like, I know Michael Bay has his own signature style, but by this point, this style has been aped so easily by people who have done it better that even the directing style feels cheap. So drop down the budget, hire people who care. I mean, shit, this is a Ron Shelton script. Make it a Ron Shelton movie. Cast Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes to be the two cops. At least then you can explain some of the dynamic. In fact, don't even make this Bad Boys 2. Make this like how they're doing True Detective, where it's a different story somewhere else. Make this like Bad Boys Des Moines, Iowa. And we focus on two other cops telling their craziest story. But then that also leads me to another punch-up. If you are going to have Will Smith and Martin Lawrence in this movie, come back when you care. Because despite my dislike of this movie, despite my dislike of Bad Boys 2, I have it on pretty good authority that Bad Boys 3 is quite a bit of fun. And I have to imagine that Bad Boys 3 is the movie they wanted to come back for. You know, of course, they got a boatload of money, too. But it wasn't it wasn't the cynical cash grab that Bad Boys 2 was. I, I said it at the top of the show. I'll say it again. 
you could tell they don't want to be there. You could tell Michael Bay doesn't want to be there, Will Smith, Martin Lawrence, and it shows. So come back when you do care. My final punch up, let's focus on, on a more fun element of the movie itself. The fucking Woosa that they established at the beginning of the movie as this punchline catchphrase, you know, you're supposed to say it like a serenity now. Where's the final Woosa in this movie? Oh my God. How come Johnny doesn't explode and they say Woosa, motherfucker, and they look at each other and they're like, you're cured, I'm cured, and then they fucking make out. Just Mike and Marcus start sucking and fucking each other. That's the movie <laughs> I want to see, Mac. Seriously, Woosa, motherfucker, would have been a catchphrase if, if mm, they had pulled yeah. that off. Instead, it's just like some dumb callback to Bad Boys 1 where Mike is like, that's how you shoot. Because I think in the first one he said, that's how you act or something. Oh, gosh. Something like that. Sure. I don't know. Some punch-ups already said. This movie's overstuffed. It's too long. The villain sucks. But some other more specific punch-ups is so the secrets that they're hiding, right? Mike wants to date Marcus's sister. And it obviously means something. Like, he obviously has real feelings for her, right? And Marcus you know, wants to, you know, be transferred away because he's worried about his health and protecting his family. However, his partnership does mean something. When they have that conversation, make those real moments. Like in Anchorman, of all things, there's a moment where Ron Burgundy is at a bar and he's drunk and he's like, you know what the worst part is? And he's talking about the fact that Ron Corningstone uh, took over his desk position that used to be his. And he goes, she's better than me. She's better than me. And it's sort of like a moment where he says his problem and it has real emotion. And it's like, damn, all right, a real acting moment. Give these guys at least one real acting moment where they're like, you know what, Mike? Like, I'm scared. I, I'm still, the shit that we get into, like, I got a family. I want to see some grandkids. And, you know, Mike could be like, Marcus, fuck you for not thinking I'm good enough for taking your, like, you're dating your sister. You should know me by now. You know, just, you, you know, just have it out. Have a real moment. Because otherwise, it's just banter and who gives a shit. My other punch up is there needs to be a third bad boy. And what I mean is we need to take a member of the TNT and elevate them. And that person needs to be some kind of like pace changer. And I was like looking around to see who I would cast as this. And honestly, I don't have a good answer. And honestly, it could be anyone, right? It could be like uh, Hannibal Burris or Owen Wilson, just someone who's got like a different energy. Hannibal Burris probably would definitely not be on the radar in 2003. You know what I mean? But it could even be Shaq for all I give a shit. Just somebody who's like got a different energy than this like hyperactive bah, 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 that like Martin Lawrence and, and Will Smith have, you know, just, mm. just something to change it up. Basically, I'm looking for a Benji, right? The role that Simon Pegg took in Mission Impossible, where he's kind of like a different energy than Tom Cruise, but entertaining. Like, and maybe this third guy, he's their tech guy. So we don't have to turn to mm. John fucking Sally to have him have a prominent role in this thing. Yeah, it would have been nice, you know, maybe someone like a, a Joe Pesci in Lethal Weapon 3. Maybe that's not the best example, but someone just kind of say, Hey, crazy guys, you guys are crazy. Or you know what? Fuck it. Have John Sally stand up from that goddamn chair. He's the new Hightower. And next thing you know, he's uh, they have a bunch of jokes about height that are maybe actually funny. All right, David, please join me in the Punch Mouth Video Store. David, this is an all-action video store, and we have three copies of Bad Boys 2. So what shelves are these going on? Which I mean is... What subcategories of action fit this movie? All right. First copy is going in 2000s action. For a buddy action comedy, this has all of that 2000s mirthlessness that I love so much. This is a joyless movie. Of course, it belongs in 2000s action. Cop action is going to be my second copy. It's a buddy cop movie. What can you say? My third copy is going to go in a section called Get Your Cool Movies Here. And by that, I mean it's a, it's a separate room in the video store. 
and it's behind a, a curtain and it's a, and there's a sign flash that says, get your cool movies here. And so somebody says, oh, I like cool movies. And so they go behind that curtain and it's like when you, when you don't pay your taxes and you get a thing that says, hey, come get your free boat. And instead of getting your free boat, you have to pay taxes. It's like that. We're, we're gonna arrest you if you wanna rent Bad Boys 2. Maybe we'll shoot you with like a sterilizing agent, but uh, there's no reason we should be carrying Bad Boys 2 in our video store. <laughs> we have to, Dave, we have, we're an all action movie video store. I was tempted to put this under like a buddy action movie, but I think that implies that you like the two main leads together, and I don't. So I would definitely make sure that, look, there has to be a Michael Bay shelf in this thing. It's probably going to be a dusty mm. shelf, but uh, it has to exist. So I would I would file a third company under, under uh, Bayham, I guess. Mm. Okay, David, time to discover the position of Bad Boys 2 on Punch Mountain, a.k.a. the ultimate ranking of action movies. Before the mountain shares with us its wisdom, where would you rank this movie, David? Oh boy, I wouldn't rank it very high. I didn't like this movie very much from a movie perspective. I don't really think it has a lot of weight from an action perspective. You know, some of the action was impressive. The car chases were cool. Some of the shootouts were competent and decent. But without characters that I care about, without a story that I care about, then what am I watching? If they didn't care making it, I really don't care watching it. I don't have a ton of good things to say about it. I throw it at the mercy of the mountain. What about you, Mac? Yeah, I don't know. It has some fun action scenes, right? Corpses falling out of a car, the opening one, the spinny shot, the Cuban invasion, shit just got real. But everything in between, I don't care about. So it's got good action, but there's not many other good things I can uh, point out about this movie. So I honestly, I don't know. Oh my goodness, David. I hope that wasn't your Ferrari that just got crushed by those rocks falling off the face of the mountain. As those rocks fall off, the golden letters are appearing, revealing the position of Bad Boys 2. And it is number 40. That means 37 Punisher Warzone, 38 Sucker Punch, 39 Olympus Has Fallen, 40 Bad Boys 2, followed by Need for Speed, The Driver, and The Dirty Dozen. Which uh, I have to say, David, you know, I think it's going to be surprising for a lot of people that for a movie with some memorable moments, like the spinny camera and shit just got real, for it to be that low, but uh, it's just, it's tough to see it go higher when the rest of the movie just doesn't feel like it's working. Yeah, I understand that. And if you're someone who feels like this is too low, tough shit. I think at the end of the day, I I don't say tough shit. I appreciate differences of opinion. (laughs) So do I, but also tough shit. But I guess what, you know, I'm thinking of just like the timelessness of this movie, you know, it was a hit. Don't get me wrong. And I see why it was a hit. The, The fact that this appeal to audiences in 2003 is not lost on me, but to watch it 21 years later and to watch the jokes fall flat and to watch the action just feel underwhelming and for a lot of the humor to not age well it's the same reason why we don't really talk about 48 hours that much anymore why we don't really talk about freebie and the bean anymore because there are other action movies there are other buddy cop movies that do this better and you know if you like michael bay if you have an appreciation for this movie i hope you enjoy it all the live long day but i think it is where it belongs on the mountain yeah, I think Bad Boys 2 as like a uh, supercut highlight reel of the movie is pretty good. I think the full two and a half hours is is not great. Oh my goodness, David, do you hear that noise? Mac, is that is that a Haitian horn I, I hear? I don't I don't know, David. I, I don't think so, because I think that is the horn uh, calling us to action. We talk a lot about fictional action heroes, but we also want to talk about real heroes taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. This month, we're supporting UNICEF. UNICEF, also known as the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund, 
help save and protect child victims of war and violence through evidence-based interventions and response services in more than 140 countries. UNICEF is working alongside partners to meet the urgent needs of children impacted by wars in Gaza, Sudan, Syria, Ukraine, and Yemen. After each episode this month, Punchbound will be making a small donation to UNICEF USA. For more information on UNICEF or to donate directly to them, visit unicefusa.org. UNICEF is U-N-I-C-E-F-U-S-A.org. Folks, that'll do it for another edition of Punch Mountain. Don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Instagram at Punch Mountain or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com. You can also join us on Discord. The link is in our link tree. The link tree is on our Instagram. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for all things Mac Blake next week from 2023. Directed by John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, it's Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. I am excited. I hope you are too. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.